I do kind of hesitate to ask, but I'm also like really curious why you find the sight and sound list so annoying. It's not that I find it annoying. I just find it somewhat pointless, I guess, is, the, is my, my, it's my, I sat there and I looked at the list and I'm like, and everyone was getting all a titter and I was like, okay, I, you know, I'm a movie cinephile, whatever you want to call us, nerd, have you, what have yeah. you. And like, I'm looking at this list and I'm like, and I'm looking at it from like a, a, a populist standpoint and I'm like, one, I think all of these films are fun. I think a hundred is too many, but, but so my, my thought process of this list here is it's, it's great. They're, you know, some of these films people know most of them they won't but there's no context of why you should be watching these films and I think that gets a lot lost in this conversation because you and again not that we have to cater to the lowest common denominator not to say that someone who likes the movies that we're going to be talking about today are the lowest common denominators honestly if you like movies at all totally 100% on board with that I'm glad you do I'm glad you're watching I'm glad you're participating in the art form and that is absolutely sincere on my part. I have no, I begrudge no one for liking any movie that they like. I mean, you like what you like. Right. But like you take any average Joe Schmo off the street and show them Citizen Kane, they're gonna be bored out of their fucking mind. And and, and to be to be fair, I, I like Citizen Kane, but I also am not going back to it over and over and over again. I think in these cases, that context, one, I think it's very interesting, the director's portion of it. I think individual directors, I'm very interested to know what Scorsese wants to watch or Tarantino wants to talk or Bond, you know, all these guys, what, what are they, or all these women, these, these directors, what do they want to, you know, what are the things that influence them and how they influence them? But I'm looking at a sight and sound list that it's full of a hundred movies and then most of them are not going to be films that are accessible or even available or people will even know why to seek them out. And so if you give someone Panther Pachali and then they don't have any idea why they should be watching that, it doesn't, it doesn't speak to anything to me. And so I, I was just sitting there, I'm sitting there looking at it and I'm like, this is academic for academic sake. And there's no value to anybody other than cinephiles. And it's just a masturbatory, you know, uh, <laughs> exercise. No offense to the people who participated. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, but I, I, I do think that this does speak to audience. And I think the audience for Sight and Sound or a Sight and Sound list or a BFI list of any kind are not the same. It's not the same audience who's going to go watch Top Gun Maverick a couple times. Sure. And I also think it's a list for the curious, for the... The, the, the sort of burgeoning cinephile. What should I watch? Oh, here's a list. I can sort of dive in wherever. I can start with the top 10 and then try to figure out why these are on the top 10. I mean, th that's why I think it is. So in that context, I think it'd be really, really interesting to say, here are the populist movies that you most likely like. The people in these, you know, that, that are, that are, in the consciousness of right now, and not necessarily Top Gun Maverick, right? But I mean, you're talking about Pulp Fiction, you're talking about Parasite, or you're talking about Get Out, which I know those two made the list, right? But, but to that extent of like, hey, if you like this, these are the things that influence this. And when you're watching this, look out for these things. Like, look at the cinematography here, look at the dialogue here, look at this particular set piece here. Not that everything has to be a study per se, but as we get further and further along where we are just consuming content, you and I have had this conversation off mic before about this kind of, and again, I'm not one to say that, you know, movies of a particular time and place are better or worse, or we're seeing a dumbing down of, of, of art in general. I mean, there's always been pop art. There's always been pop music, you know, bubblegum shit. There's always been, again, stuff to get dry people in the seats. 
I don't think that there's a degradation necessarily, but there might be now that we have organizations that are just trying to put out content. We've had this conversation before where it's like, it's like take knives out and glass onion, for example, there's not an urgency. And not that I, not that I think that box office draw is the end all be all and the thing that we should the barometer in which we should measure all of these films, but there's not an urgency to, if there's not an urgency to make back your hundred million dollar budget, if you are making glass onion and you are lazy about it, which and again, I know that that film is well reviewed. I think it is a piece of garbage. And again, I'm guessing piece of garbage is probably too strong. But I mean, in regards to where knives so out didn't came like from, it. no, it fucking sucked. It was terrible. And we can get into why I fucking no, hated no, it. No, but no, like, no, I don't want to. And I didn't. Again, maybe because I found myself laughing at certain points, and then I found myself just like thinking about it afterwards, thinking how lazy and how boring sure. it actually was, and how you know the the writing was completely subpar below what Ryan Johnson's done in the past. And again, if that's happening to him, a, a filmmaker that I actually like, then, and obviously it's happening to when you put together things like the Will Ferrell, Ryan Reynolds spirited movie on Apple plus mm-hmm. it's this level of, I'm, you know, where we flip the script where there's prestige TV now. And like you get to the point where now movies are just like this middle of the road, generic horse shit, which is what I think we're having a lot in these produced content movies for streaming channels that don't care about, they care about eyes. They care about who's watching and how many people watch it and how many hours are being watched. They do not give a shit. If you like it, they just give a shit. If you're watching their system and that sucks. And if, and if it's happening to someone like Ryan Johnson, that's a danger that we should all be aware of. So to that end, if we're just generating bullshit, then there is a there is a genuine need to go back and look at what was good and what came before it. And you have an audience that will realize that they're being fed gruel and that there is steak that can be seen in the past. <laughs> Give them a reason to go back and watch the steak rather than just suck up the gruel. And I think that to that end, it would be really, really interesting to have showing all the directors that voted, giving them the top 25, and then saying, here's why you want to watch it. And giving it from an auteur's perspective, a, a respected director's perspective to say, hey, when you're watching you know, Vertigo, and again, that's a pretty accessible film. I know it's like number two or number three, whatever it was. Here's what you should be. Here's and it, Enjoy it. First, first and foremost, enjoy this right. film. We hope you enjoy it. But also, if you get caught up and you feel like, why am I watching this? Well, here, here's some reasons why. Because people love that trivial shit anyway. People will go in and 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 stick around to understand. So, I mean, if you if you if you carry them from the trivia to why certain scenes matter, what Hitchcock was doing, you know, certain angles that Hitchcock was filming from, how he framed scenes. So these people start to pay attention to the art. There's no harm in that. There's no harm to take and take a a deeper look or deeper analysis of why you certainly like things. And then that will permeate and allow you to understand why you don't want to see something like glass onion or why you should look, look beyond those types of movies. And again, you like glass onion. Awesome. Glad you did. But there are you know better constructed films out there. And here's how you start to pick those apart. It doesn't have to be everything. Some sort of snobbish, you know, experiment or, or we have to like, you don't have to continually pick things apart. But I think, like I said, the sound and sound thing, I think most people are going to look at that, especially if you're, I mean, again, I understand that there's a certain audience for that. That's going to be excited for it. And everyone's going to go and everyone's going to go buy the Gene Dillman criterion disc. And that's great. But half the time you're going to buy it and it's going to fucking sit on your shelf. You're not coming back to a 200 
hour, two hundred. Well, it's, th- it's a three hour right. plus movie right. of of static camera and a, <laughs> and a woman doing doing chores. But this goes back to your point of no one understands. Okay, not no one, right? right? right. But no, but yeah, a no. lot of a lot of people. I, I think the people that we're sort of addressing right now would watch that movie or watch that film and go, I don't know why this is number one, and they wouldn't understand like the idea of 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 a minority character being a woman right, in terms <laughs> right. of like minor uh, or a minority in society, why her story is so important and how it's political without even trying to be, I mean, like in your face political and, and, and how the ending is fucking brilliant on so many levels. Yeah. I mean, they're not going to, they're not going to watch it, but like you said, they're not going to have that kind of idea of, of, of what makes this so great because there isn't that, there isn't that explanation. There isn't that kind of, analysis and i think we're probably giving some of these directors and, and and critics too much credit because they don't want to sit down and do that other narrative work right right of adding to liner notes right and adding to look i gave you my list and this is why i hate list because it's just like look i just i i have i gave this thing three stars i gave it four stars that means it's great but why well i don't i mean look just go see it because i gave it this rating i hate rate rankings i hate ratings i hate lists especially when it comes to art I mean, it's so subjective to put anything above anything else. Someone could be like, no, Top Gun Maverick is my favorite film of the year. The film that I think is the best. I'm going to call bullshit on that. But that doesn't mean that they're it's their top film. And that's that's kind of, again, what it comes down to is this, what do you like? Right? What do you like and why do you like it? That's what we don't teach people. I just did teach in quotes, but how to understand or how to explain why they like, why they didn't like something. Right. And that's why I don't like when people are listening to this, the, I mean, like, you know, I'm not going to Hi, welcome. <laughs> welcome to the Why Does Willem Scream. I hope you're listening for, to, for a little bit of insight behind it. And again, we're going to shit on things. And I hopefully, I hope that we convey why we're shitting on them and why we like things that we like more so than just, and again, it won't necessarily be historical context per se, but it might be, who knows, but, but depending on the film. I mean, that's the other thing is that this idea of context applies not just to, and this goes back to the list too, that I think the list is very much of its time. It's a very 2022 list. A lot of women filmmakers, uh, I mean, probably more filmmakers of color, more contemporary filmmakers. So I think this is, and I, and I think that's good because I think right. it's calling attention to things that have been traditionally kind of outside of the canon. So maybe that's the reason. And I think maybe you and I can probably share this opinion is that this framing of this is the hundred best films of all time is horseshit. Uh, complete in, bullshit. In 2022, what we should be saying, here's a hundred films that collectively we all believe you should watch. Exactly. And that you will get something out of. Because again- Get Out didn't become the 99th best film of all time some, some, in some magical sense. It's a good film. You should absolutely watch it. Here's some things you should watch out for when you watch it. Again, and it's one of those things where I think given context, I hope that it would allow you to enjoy the film more. If you start to understand why some certain, and, and again, it, it, because, and this is why, you know, having a collective talk about it too allows people to to see areas where they wouldn't have seen it before. Obviously having a variety of voices speak about a film, say what it meant to them and say why they enjoyed certain aspects of it and what you know, that's part of the narrative and hopefully will either open up things and also possibly change your view to not like a film for whatever reason. I mean, again, or at least not necessarily not like a film. I would never want to influence someone to not like a film, but to also <laughs> understand why someone might not like it. Because as, as, as like, 
as movie nerds get, we get passionate and adamant about certain things. Again, I wouldn't, but you know, this, so this adamancy of like, I've, you know, you, I like this and this is pure genius and you've got to go along with my, fuck that. I mean, no, that's ridiculous. But I mean, I think back to this idea of changing one's mind on a film. I mean, look, when I saw Godfather part three, I was in grade school and I'm like, yeah, Michael Corleone. And it was, and it was great. Well, I mean, it's not really a good movie. I think I think some people have tried to sort of reclaim it and reframe it, but I don't think it's very good. And I haven't watched like the recut or anything. Yeah, but but this is what I mean. As I kind of grow, as I watch more and more, as I watch different types of films and see how different filmmakers do different things, my opinion, my sort of knowledge base grows and expands and I can I can form different opinions on 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 these movies that I used to once adore right because it, I was 12 or fucking whatever <laughs> right like, like, we were, like we were talking about last night versus you know vice versa and like father like son these yeah. body swap movies yeah. that were prevalent in like 88 87 yeah those were I enjoy those movies I haven't gone back to revisit them but I remember distinctly watching them over and over again when they came out and, you know, so if you ask me, did I like those movies? Of course I like those movies. Now, would I like them now or what? I mean, yeah, I probably would because of nostalgia's sake. And then there's nothing wrong with that either. But again, understanding that that's, you know, not understanding that's part. why you right, like sure. it too. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Because I mean, that's the danger. I'm not going to get into nostalgia and why it's bad and, and all of that. Okay. Okay. So look, in spite of our kind of combined distaste for lists, let's make our own list. A, f- a oh, list of oh, like our Jesus five Christ. favorite for, of 2022. Oh, 2022. So because I want to do this exercise because we were just talking about it, right? So <laughs> because here's the idea. You should, I, you should I want, throw this on me out of the blue. Yes, yeah. Okay. So I am springing this on Jason. We did not talk about this before. <laughs> I, I'm well played. <laughs> thank you. I want honest subjectivity. Tar? Don't wonder. <laughs> Don't worry, darling. <laughs> Glass onion. So these are not like there, there's no particular order. They're okay. your five favorite. So it goes back to what you said. Here's five films I think you should see. Five films that came out in the calendar year of 2022 that I think you should see. Yeah, it's now, been a long time. Any, that's a, that's well, right. It's right. About a year. Right. I already made my list. Yeah, of course um, you did. Fucker. Yeah. And so whatever other criteria you want to develop there, and we'll just kind of run through them next time just quickly. But I think. Oh, so we're not doing this today. No, 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 no. We'll do it. Do it next time. But I'm still springing this on. All right. Yeah. No, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. No, I can't. I I was just like, now I'm like, I was because I was sitting here like running through all the movies I've seen this year. Like, oh, shit. I got to like come up with five new movies that no. I've seen in no, 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 no. Which so, I, I can name the bad ones. Absolutely. It's of course. Problem. Of course. Well, I've already, for, I've already forgotten most of those. Um, <laughs> and yeah. see, that's the difference between you and me. I can't like the ones that the bad ones stick with me. The good ones like the, the, but, just, because you also will sit through every film. I would get true. up and leave. That's I'm true. like, this is garbage. I'm leaving. <laughs> right. I've seen falling for Christmas twice now. Yeah. I, I it took me two times to get through it. <laughs> <laughs> So this is a good segue. Today we are going to do a Christmas film grab bag. We have five films uh, that we're going to talk about. So the aforementioned Falling for Christmas. Here's the thing. I'm excited about talking about all of these. Even when I didn't like all of them, I'm excited about talking about all of them. And which is weird is the one I think that we both probably like the most. We'll probably talk about the least. Okay. So here's the five films. Falling for Christmas. Holiday in handcuffs. Holiday in handcuffs. Deadly games. Black Christmas. Die Hard, and and we have a wheel selector that we're going to spin. All right, and we don't, are you, we don't are know. You, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready, ready? To talk about, I'm ready to talk about any of them. So let's look at that. You got a, you got actual sound effects. <laughs> Bankrupts. Oh, <laughs> Die Hard is the first one. Oh wow! All right. <laughs> okay, John McTiernan. Do, do you do you want to? 
Do you want to start? Uh, are we going to give the plot synopsis of people who haven't seen Die Hard? Yeah. Do you want to give a real quick one? Yeah, sure. Or, I mean, a hard scrabble New York detective has a, his he's wife. a New York City cop with a backlog of New York City scumbags. He can't just get up and fucking leave because some woman wants him to. He can't follow his highly successful global business development in a multi-billion-dollar con- company across the country. No. He's got cases to solve. He's he's clearing out the docket of the last crimes that are unsolved in New York City. And once he's done that, sure, he's free There's to go. There's only a couple. <laughs> But, but it's six months. He'll be done. He's out. It's a hard scrabble. That's, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's New it. York City detective. Uh, his her, his wife has got a job out in L.A. And they're kind of estranged at this point. They've been separated um, for a minute. Not necessarily officially separated, but but been, they're separated by, you know, the, the expanse of the United States. He's flying out to see his family for Christmas. And he gets to her Christmas party at the same time that... Some what we think are terrorists, but end up just being thieves show up to steal six hundred and forty million dollars in negotiable bearer bonds, whatever the fuck those are. And then, um, you know, chaos ensues. He is in a bathroom when they take over the building and he is a fly in their ointment. And then it just becomes a battle between two men, good versus evil. And we're going to see which one. And against all odds, does good win out or does evil take the day? It is a fucking, it is the best action film hands down ever fucking made. I, you cannot convince me otherwise. <laughs> it's so good. It's so, it, no, it's so good. Well, and, it, and it's become a thing, right? Because you can pitch a movie and say, oh, it's Die Hard right. on a bus. It's, it's, die, hard it's die Hard on a plane. It's Die Hard on a boat. I mean, it, that's the elevator pitch for, I mean, any number of movies now. I mean, McTiernan at the time, and I, I looked up his filmography. He hasn't made anything since um, Basic with Travolta and and Samuel L. Jackson. That was in 2003, I think. I'm not, if I make a mistake, maybe 2006. Did, did he, he only did 11 films. Did and, he get blackballed or did he do something? So he got I, I, caught I don't, up. He got caught up in that weird cocaine. No, it was um, that 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 FBI guy or whatever. He he ended up like using him to find out dirt on somebody else, and that he ended up like being convicted and like sent to jail. But he's been up for jobs since then. But I don't know necessarily really what happened. I couldn't find anything. I, I mean, I didn't do extensive Google searching. I was just looking up his filmography to think because I mean that name carries weight with me. You're talking about Predator. I mean, and and he got a he took a huge hit with Laxat with Last Action Hero when that was kind of Schwarzenegger's first bomb although it's been kind of you know reclaimed as of you know late really afterwards it was really people really liked it and then you know but it was it, it just did it just did terribly but like he was I mean like you're talking about McTiernan you're talking about Jean de Bont, who's the cinematographer you've got and, and like a, 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 a who's who of like 80s cast and like because Willis at his height You've got coming out of nowhere. You've got uh, Alan, Rickman? Alan Rickman. Alan Alan Rickman. What's his face? Yeah, I, I, I could. I drew him. like I was starting because I, I already had Atherton and Gleason in my head. Yeah, like the, the, the two great '80s assholes of every, you know of the movie of the of the eighties. You know, they were assholes of the movies in '80s. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think what else Rickman had done. Uh, he this did truly his, madly deeply. Did he do that before this? I think this was his I, first film. Like he had done wait, plays. Oh, like, really? They, they saw that? him in Dangerous Liaisons on Broadway or like in the West End, and that would like. That's our Hans Gruber. I mean, because I knew he did a bunch of stage stuff. So I'm maybe you're probably right. And this was like this. He was actually afraid to take this role because he didn't want to be typecast and like a, as a bad, you know, as a German bad guy in in 
in action films or whatever. But um, what? Yeah, it, no, what you're it, right. What, that was, what that an was, entrance into American that film. That was 1990, so it was soon after that. And then, of course, um, you've got uh, Goodenough, who's amazing and, like, obviously doesn't didn't do nearly enough. My favorite role of his is, besides this one, obviously, is, is in the criminally underrated Money Pit. Yeah. That's such a great role. You know his backstory. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. a, he was a defective, a defective. He was, he defected from Russia. He's a ballet. He was like under British. He, he was a, well, he was a, yeah, he was a primary, or he was a principal dancer at Bolshoi and then came over and worked under Barishnikov at ABT as, yeah. a, as a principal dancer. And his wife got stuck or couldn't come yeah, over. Yeah, apparently or, she didn't want to stay. Right. Uh, I mean, that, I think there's kind of a, and they actually made like, a, I think a TV movie about the whole thing. Oh, really? Um, but yeah, she she flew back and was like, I never wanted to like stay in America. He loves America. Right. But and, and the guy like drank himself to death. So he left ABT after like falling out with Barishnikov. Right. And then kind of toured with his own company for a while, but then you know, started or did more acting Yeah, and died at 45 hepatitis from and like chronic like shit brick house too. I mean, I just know. like, I'm just amazing, like physique and like but the way he moves in this film, it's like, you know, he's a ballad. I mean, you know that he's trained in pantomime the way he sort of turns and like <laughs> exits the screen. I fucking love it. I just, um, he had a weird film career. Like he turned down a lot of stuff and like, yeah. and then ended up being like, uh, he was a direct video horror guy. He was yeah. in waxwork, those waxwork mm-hmm. movies and like rune something. I forget exactly mm-hmm. what the name of it was because it was witness. And, and Money Pit and this right. and and then he was like he didn't want to do these roles that got him typecast as either a dancer or a villain right <laughs> but then he made a really terrible direct video stuff so I mean it was just it's just a weird like weird yeah. set of choices but yeah I mean it's like so but I mean like, honestly, it's one to... of those things where like you I mean like he will go down in history as one oh. of the great villains of all oh, time yeah. I mean he's just he's just so great in that role and and so striking and so memorable that like I, I would love to have that on my resume of just being even if I was the only film and I only did you know Keebler commercials for the rest of my life or whatever you know that'd, be, that'd be that'd be cool right I, yeah. I like those cookies I mean <laughs> Little, and it got like, out. It had Al Leong in it as well, it, who was like he's so he's the Asian bad guy with the who, long hair, in, like, like Big Aldous. Trouble Little China, and yes. all of those. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and he's so great now where he's like stealing the candy, <laughs> the candy from the bar while he's waiting to like, come in. Yeah. Uh, the quarterback is toast. <laughs> quarterback is that's the great part of that. So <laughs> love, it's so funny. Like that, there's so many that one you. That movie wastes no time whatsoever. You dive right in. You you get the backstory. You get the backstory that you need. It's perfect because the the car ride over with Argyle, which one? Kudos to putting in Christmas and Hollis. I mean, like that's that the best Christmas movie, a Christmas song of all time. Run DMC's Christmas time and Hollis, and then and then you get the entire backstory. As he's telling it to Argyle. He's sitting up front with Argyle, kind of shooting the shit, and then that's it. And then you're in, and then basically everything kicks off yeah no, you got a nice little bit of nudity with the the sex oh that's right because they're like yeah getting busy in the office and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right you 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 meet takashi you meet uh um what's the guy's name um ellis ellis yes thank you you meet ellis <laughs> just get a little cold, cold. <laughs> you, know, you, you missed a bit is <laughs> he's doing cocaine as, as his boss is coming in he's in, 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 in holly's office now of course he goes up to nakatomi tower his he finds out that his wife has jettisoned his last name because she's with a Japanese company and wants to be a powerful woman. And so she's gone by Gennaro, Miss Gennaro. And um, they get into an argument and he goes to wash up in a bathroom. And at that point, that's when essentially, I mean, like really right on his tail, right on his tail, the, the terrorist slash thieves show up to Nakatomi Tower to, and again, you don't really get any of their 
it, like there's not a whole lot of motivation there other than the bear bonds and everything else is just just really just kind of exposition i mean it's just set up to go drive yeah. drive the plot right they're just there to steal and you, you don't need anything else they've you know they've got a you they've got to drill through and open up the safe that's got six pylons that they've got to <laughs> they've got to get through and then the seventh one they have to have a miracle right they need a miracle and then <laughs> have some faith theo it's christmas <laughs> theo is amazing in this he's so like funny and oh. great and like it, it um, all of the henchmen are perfectly European. And Willis, it's really a shame, and I understand why, but it's really a shame that his latter career is kind of devolved into. Now, I know he's been a prickly person for a while as well, but that his latter career has just been a paycheck gathering exercise because of his illness. Right. And that he's just trying to you know, build up. I, I mean, and again, I say this because I don't necessarily know this is true, but it seems like this is a case where he's just taking roles and being fed lines to be in movies that are paying him money so that he can set up his family, which right. kudos to him. That's great. But I mean, like it's in, it's in, it's unwatchable direct. I haven't even tried right. to be quite no, honest. No. And it's just a shame that like, we don't get to see. I mean, a lot of these actors will sort of age into something different and we don't get to see that with, with him. I mean, cause he's before this film, I knew him from Moonlighting. Right. I mean, Which almost that's oh, so good. Yeah, that, that was so good. And then to see him in this and to see him play action hero, but also wise ass the entire time. It's it really, was great. Really it was it was so good. And the balance was was really well done. And it, it makes it infinitely rewatchable. What's and what's so crazy, too, is you got to think around that same time you had, you know, you had your muscular movie stars that were throwing out quips here and there, but they weren't and they were funny and repeatable one liners. But this was a guy who was really bringing a comedic performance. And yeah, he's you know, he's well built in this role. I mean, he's not like he's a muscular. I mean, he's muscular, but he's not like. But he's not Stallone. Right. Right. I mean, because I mean, Schwarzenegger's bigger. He's not. He's not. not, Right. He's not like he's a six pack abs and ridiculous pecs and things. He looks like an every average day Joe. Right. He looks like a New York City cop who's (laughs) after New York City scumbags. Right. Wow. It was great. As he gets off the airplane, he's smoking immediately. I know. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Such a. But I mean, but again, like all of these, there are so many little things that tell us so much about his character when he sits up front in the limo when he sees the couple hugging in the airport he's like California I love I mean that just like this disdain of like it's just like right? New York versus California well, like it's just two different worlds right because he is in in some respect it's a fish out of water movie right sure, I mean right, it's a fish right. out of water movie it's a stranger comes to town movie uh, it's it's a hero's journey film and it's all this but but all those little things right the quips these these uh, the, the cigarettes <laughs> the way he, why does he pause before he says cigarettes? I can tell they're European by cigarettes. I was watching it again this morning. I'm like, what the, why does he do that? Why does he pause there? It gets me every time. But I just think, I think it's such a good, such a good character. And, and, and no one has to tell us anything. It's all through yeah. dialogue action. Well, and what he the, looks like. And the, and the, the, the through line of not having, a voiceover, but having a, another LA cop on the outside, ha- where that plot device of allowing him to explain his story and give the backstory and give the depth to why he's, you know, why he is who he is and where his family is and all of that. That was, it's like, I don't think people realize when they're watching it, this is a perfectly constructed yeah. movie yeah because you don't you sit there and it's it's oh it's two hours and change mm-hmm. you're sitting there it is enthralling the it goes by in a blink of an eye it, it doesn't stop no in fact i was sitting there watching it i was watching it late with cat and like and i had to like i kept turning i was like fuck this is gunshots the entire goddamn thing <laughs> like i can't <laughs> 
like, why is it so loud? Everything's a gunshot. God. This thing. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's, it's nonstop, but it never feels gratuitous either. And the fact that it is stuck in this, I mean, really for the most part, stuck in this world of this giant building. Yeah. Right. Debon would do it well with speed. Like I think speed yeah. is a really, really good yeah. example of this. T- I mean, it's not, speed is not nearly as good. But but it is a good example of this type of diehard meets something else. All the rest of them probably are kind of crap. It, this this one, it, I shouldn't say that because I'm, I'm not pulling all of them. But but th- that being said, this one is. I mean, Air Force One, uh, Passenger <laughs> Fifty Seven, <laughs> Passenger Fifty Seven, and these are landlord. <laughs> it's gonna be our callback from here on out. Um, Come out to the coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's so much of this that quippiness that that is so like it was so inherent of his of his moonlighting role that was so well done. And again, just as such a weird like contrast, you did not see this type of guy in this mm-hmm. type of movie, and it really just I mean propelled everyone to <laughs> start up. If if I had any complaints before we get to Rickman, before I had any complaints, I think Bedelia is a little underused. I think she's really really good in the thing. Like go. Watch they shoot horses, don't they? She's amazing. Like she's amazing in almost all the shit that she does. Yes. And, and she's not bad in this. I just don't think she's given enough. I mean, and I, I like that they give her like the position of power in the family and that because oh, she still has the emotional gravitas, but also she kind of owns a little bit over Bruce Willis as well. She kind of lords this over. It's like where, you know, I'm of course I'm successful. I'm making money. Like, why wouldn't you come out here and do this? You're just showing the watch. <laughs> Show him the watch. It's a Rolex. <laughs> and I would say I think the Gleason character is a little too spot on to be like he's so he's played a little bit too much for for laughs. Right. And also just a buffoonery. He's a clown. Right. Yeah. Which I don't yeah. think you necessarily need because he's not in there enough. Right. Like I think you can come over there and, and have, give him give um, Sergeant Powell a dressing down. But I don't think you need him in to be that the, the whole lines about you. We've got I, I get it. And it's one of those. It does become memorable. Like the whole line about, you know, we got people with glass all over them and the things like that. I'm not sure how real or breath meant how realistic that would be like in this kind of right. scenario. Yeah, it, and again, that's fine. This movie's not going for realism. That's no, fine. So I'm not going to say no, that, but no, but I think that, that may, that's the, uh, my, again, very, very minor distractions of those two. And again, I like Paul Gleason and I like Bonnie Bedelia so much anyway, that really, it's not really that much right. of a, a big deal. Right. Before you get on to Rickman, <clears throat> I wanted to, to note another line that I don't know if people catch, but is it, it cracks me up every time. And that's when the FBI gets there and the agent says, I'm Agent Johnson. It's a special agent Johnson. No relation. relation. <laughs> One guy's black and the other guy is Italian. He's a he's a character from from Goonies. I remember him in Goonies. But yes, it's yeah, just, he was it's one just, of the it, it, yeah. It, but it's set so like deadpan. So. He doesn't even look back. <laughs> no, he doesn't. It's just yeah. He's just no like, relation because they're look. They're not even paying attention to Paul Gleason's character no. at all. No. What do you think about before we get to yeah. Rickman? What do you think of Atherton's character, William Atherton? He's the he's kind of the other bad guy. He's the bad guy in wait. He's the Ghostbusters. Reporter. He's the he's a reporter yeah. here that goes <laughs> the, after. He's also the, um, the professor. My favorite role of his is a professor in Real Genius. <clears throat> but, but yeah, he's the reporter that that basically goes after and gets an interview with 
um, with with Bruce Willis and Bonnie Bedelia's kids, and kind of threatens to to deport their their their, their, their housekeeper and their maid if he doesn't allow them to to interview the kids. I, I think he is great at being a prick. Yeah, in like everything he's in. Right? I mean, Ghostbusters. Yeah. Yes, Your Honor, it's true. This man has no dick. <laughs> but no, I, I think he I think he is meant to play a kind of sleazy true crime journalist. You know, not quite tabloid, but something close. But what were those? What were those? What were those sort of news tabloid shows that were on after, like local news? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, he was one of those guys, and there were a couple. And there were a couple on, and you always had this guy who was out there, like trying to get people and trying to get like the most scandalous kind of scoop in someone's face. Right, right, trying to work them up so that something happens and you can catch something sensational. So. And I think he did that well. And I think that, I mean, look, he's he's another part that I think we remember really well about this film because we're just like, what a sleazebag. I'm glad she punched him in the face, <laughs> which right. which plays, you know, in the second Die Hard as well. So, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. So let's get to the man of the hour, which again, which makes this film <clears throat> so good is their interaction. And like, it, but I'm talking about Alan Rickman, of course. And of course, I think everyone who know, I mean, who is a fan of movies is a fan of Alan Rickman. I don't think there's any detractors of what he does. Like the interaction between the two of them, even when it's on the phone and they haven't seen each other, but, but, but particularly when they're together on screen is so good. And you don't actually, I mean, like Rickman keeps his composure throughout the entire film until obviously when things, when the barrier bonds are flying out the window and he's holding on by a Rolex, it's fine. <laughs> we get that one would. Um, it's a two-tone lady date right. <laughs> <laughs> but but that scene where he meets and obviously I, it's it feels weird to be talking about a movie that everyone has seen like this but that right. scene where he's he meets uh, bruce willis and he has the name of the of the person pulled off the wall and he goes so quickly into Clay. the into the into the <laughs> really yeah. bad american accent but, but like, on purpose but i mean right but also it's also william clay not bill clay <laughs> How fucking good is that? Right. Like that's so. I mean, right. obviously, I know that 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 you know that was written into this into the script, but the just, just that interaction and yeah, that bad American accent, and then like him, his delicious going back into the German to talk on the onto the walkie-talkie after Willis, you know, he, he has the gun and he points the gun on Willis. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, my favorite line in the, I mean, I, and I know this is probably ever, you know, it's, it's obviously well liked, but that you ask for a miracle and I give you the <laughs> FBI. So good. So good. It is. I could listen to that all. Like that could be my ringtone. I don't even, I, that would, I love maybe one of my top five lines in any movie of all time. It, and again, the, the way he talks to the CEO, the head guy. I forget his name. Takagi. Takagi. Takagi yeah, well, okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and they're in the elevator going up to like the conference room and he looks at his suit and I forget nice suit. John Phillips. It would be I have two myself, (laughs) but but it's that like I have two myself. And then later on he, he, the callback to the suit, but just that, that I have two of those. I'm just like you. I mean, kind of, but where he sort of holds himself in, in a hierarchy, I think is, I think is great. And then the line where, who says to him, oh, is, I think it's Takagi, or I forget who it is. I'm sorry. It's just like, oh, you're just a common thief. And he's like, I'm an exceptional thief. <laughs> right. It's, yeah. We will be on a beach earning 20%. <laughs> because Those are good bearer bonds, I guess. I don't, again, I have no, I have no information or knowledge they're about called, bearer bonds. They're called bearer bonds because you don't register them. So whoever holds, holds them, them is the owner. Paper. Yeah. And the, the payment coupons are actually 
attached to the bonds themselves. So they're bonds like any like T bonds or whatever. I understand why you have their huge safe to hold them. So the reason that they're that they've gone out of fashion and they're not used is one because technology, but also because they were used for this specific reason. They were used for underhanded illegal laundering money, arms dealing. They're used in heat for the same exact Mm -hmm. way. I mean, they're bearer bonds, so whoever has them has the cash, and that's why they try to do that deal and buying money anyway. (laughs) Right. Yes. So yeah, that I mean, that's you can't register them if you have them in your hands. You're the owner. There's so many little like pieces of flair of this movie that are just stand out and, and make it exceptional. When Bruce Willis comes back into like the elevator shaft there, he, and he opens up some sort of control panel and there's a naked, you know, there's a picture of a playboy centerfold. And he like, he just takes a moment. He's in this like horrible environment. He takes a moment to just to patch the picture just to, as to give it like a high five. Like, Hey, that's cool that that's there. It's a little pick me up. I get it. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I get to see boobs one last time before I possibly get shot. Right. <laughs> right. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So many tiny little things that just, uh, it's fucking brilliant. It's my Christmas tradition. I watch it every, every Christmas day. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I don't, yeah, um, it's, it's so damn good. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't I can't, I don't have anything else to say about it. So. Let's move on. Let's uh, spin the wheel of Christmas again. <laughs> Deadly Games. Code Noel. This one I, code I don't, Santa I don't Claus. since we saw this one so recently, I don't actually have any notes on this one, but I mean, I can just dive into it. So I, I, yeah, you want to you, the, you get the plot synopsis of this? Or do you want me to do it? It's fine. Well, so I'll, I'll give this. On Christmas Eve, a resourceful young boy has to defend himself and his grandfather from a killer dressed as Santa Claus. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, I mean, his, his mother is the chief executive of a department store like a big department store yeah she seems like she's on like a lot of boards because she talks about how she invests in different toy stores or she toy probably companies. owns different guys so pro- she might be in like a conglomerate yeah and, okay but she's but she actually works at this one because she's has to uh, rectify the books on christmas eve she's in charge of everything right right but i think this idea of rectifying the books on christmas eve is something else that the movie kind of does a lot of which just doesn't make no there's a, a lot of a, there's a, a lot of devices a lot of to, to, to set right? this up for but, sure but she has to go to work um her father lives with them in this castle out in like the suburbs of paris and he's diabetic he can't see very well he's old and skinny he's like grandpa joe um, it is a very grandpa joke and and thomas is this 10 year old genius prodigy, inventor, yeah. a prodigy of technology. And he, yeah, he's a software developer. He's a mechanic. He uh, is also like, he knows electronics. He's, he is able to wire up cameras and also a remote control that, that and also a, a, v, a remote viewing uh, device. device on his arm for his entire house. Now his entire goal. So he's a, he's a precocious, really brilliant 10 year old kid, but he also is coming. He still believes in Santa Claus. So his intent this Christmas is to catch Santa and be able to see Santa Claus because he's kind of wavering in that belief too. Right. right. Is that fair? I mean, well, he's wavering because also I think all of the kids in his, in his class are also like kind of telling him that Santa's not real. And then all my parents, you know, all of our parents buy our Christmas presents and that sort of thing. And so it's like, if I can catch Santa, I can prove to you. Right. So he's basically trying to kind of prove to himself whether or not Santa is actually real or not. And he also kind of wants to yeah, defend himself to, to his classmates when, he can, when he's been defending Santa as well. But his mother tells him before she goes off to work that day and, and leaves him to take care of his diabetic, elderly, <laughs> non-sighted <laughs> grandfather that 
if you see Santa, he'll turn into an ogre. And so you don't, that's why you want to go to bed. You don't want to see Santa because it'll turn into an ogre and he'll try to get you. The subplot of this movie, not necessarily a subplot, but the also side action in this movie is that we have a pedophile roaming the streets. And a, a pedophile may be too strong a term. You're not really know. It's he's coded just, that way, but he's a vagrant. Right. He's a vagrant. He's, and so he engages in this snowball fight outside mm-hmm. of the, uh, outside of this city apartment. All the kids get weirded out and they run away. So he goes to the store and he, well, he's in the, he ends up going onto this like computer terminal in looks like some sort of Grand Central Station, some sort of train station, which a public computer terminal. And yes. And he's like by the, by the quarter, he's online chatting as, a, as Santa with kids, which is a really weird piece of software. Weird. I don't know how that actually works where anybody can chat. But anyway, he's chatting with Thomas on this code Santa Claus kiosk, you know? Yeah. And, and, so he's answering Thomas's questions. He doesn't really know that this is Thomas necessarily. He goes and gets a job as he runs out of quarters <laughs> as a vagrant will do and can no longer chat as, as Santa Claus. So he goes to the toy store to get a job as Santa because Thomas's mom wants Christmas Eve to be a fucking blowout. Christmas Santa's on every she wants people to think that Santa shops at her store. She wants Santa's on every aisle. She wants flamethrowers. She wants <laughs> she wants comedic gymnasts. Dancing elves. <laughs> comedic gymnasts was, was the one that like drove me like, over the line. Like, Maybe a bad translation. Comedic but gymnastics. Like, so she wants all of this this craziness to be <clears throat> in this store that is already jammed, packed, full of people still buying gifts at like 1030 at night. On Christmas on Eve. On Christmas Eve. France different times. Man, right, right. Different times. So... She so he goes and he's very easily no background check. He's very easily able to get a job as Santa. So he gets a job as Santa and the first girl that he well, we don't necessarily know this first girl, but one of the girls that comes up to him and sits on his lap and is going to tell him what he wants. He starts stroking her face. She gets weirded out, says, you're not the real Santa. And he he will smiths her and (laughs) and slaps the shit out of her. Well, Thomas's mom sees that and obviously fires him on the spot and tells him to go up to HR and you're fired and get, get, get gone. And so he goes up to HR and he finds out that there's a huge load of toys being delivered to the boss's house. And so he jumps in the truck and heads over to the boss's house to exact his revenge, still dressed as Santa Claus. (laughs) And there he finds Thomas and his grandfather. Now in this castle, it, it, so this movie has a lot of failings in, 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 <laughs> yes. in a sense. It is a lot of fun to watch, I will say, but it, it, but it, it, it is not – I wouldn't go so far as to classify it as a good movie. It is a confusing movie, and we'll get into A lot of weird choices. Yeah, and, and so in this house, it is a very big and gigantic house. It has a – Thomas is set up in the house. He's basically given free reign. I'm not really sure when he goes to school. I know he does go to school. But he has a lot of free time on his hands, and he's basically a latchkey kid because he set up all these secret passageways, and his father has lived there, and his father. So this looks like some sort of family heirloom that's been dropped down over and over again, and they put all of their toys in a back kind of hidden room that only Thomas knows how to get to, and it's full of really fantastical toys, like a, almost a life-size plane a like a, a to, an Indian totem and like or in and so there's all kinds of toys and it's just kind of like a wasteland of toys that Thomas is like a treacherous bridge right think mm-hmm. think Willy Wonka the, as you think, open up think, the, think Willy Wonka on the island of misfit toys there you go there you go and so the, so Thomas already has kind of the home field advantage when Santa comes to to take revenge so Thomas is trying to stay awake um for Santa Claus he talks to his mom 
and he's underneath the this this dining room table where the the fireplace is and so thomas actually falls asleep and his mom kind of coaxes him to sleep and he falls asleep and then but then the psycho santa comes down the chimney and thomas wakes up and unfortunately thomas has a dog named jr who's kind of his best friend and in one of the most harrowing scenes of the film the, the dog starts to attack santa and santa takes a a pie um Pine knife, you know, whatever you call those, a, 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 you know, yeah, in a, in a very European film fashion, just stabs the dog right in the neck. The the crowd we were watching it with was not prepared for that type of chaos because you don't see dogs getting killed very often in movies. And I never do because I close my eyes. Thomas freaks out. The dog is unfortunately dead. It's a very it's a very rough scene. And then of course, then it's just a battle of wits between between Thomas and Santa and, and Grandpa. He tries to hide Grandpa in the toy area because Grandpa can't see very well. And then he puts Grandpa in this suit of armor. Uh, a little bit later on and that's kind of wired together but his grandpa starts to go into diabetic shock and he needs his insulin so there's all these kind of obstacles that happen now all during this time th- th- there's just different types of battles between thomas and this and santa and they're all edited really oddly the the, the tension in this movie is completely undercut and again I hate shitting on this movie necessarily because I, I don't want to discourage people from, from watching it but but if we're going to pick it apart the tension's completely undercut because you don't like something will happen. You'll see Thomas set up a booby trap. It will go off and then Thomas will slowly walk away or Santa will slowly walk away and then they'll move directly to the next booby trap. And and so they're all kind of intricate and you, you're you very much rooting for this kid because he's he's emotional. He I wouldn't say he's the greatest actor in the world, but he he brings he gave it his all for this movie. Mm-hmm. He's very emotional. He's cute. He's I mean, he's got a mullet and like a and spiky hair on top. He is I don't know. He's engaging in, in the same way. And again, this this movie was compared to Home Alone and the and the and the the director, Renee, Renee Manzor. He had wanted to sue because home alone comes out a year later there's it's very loosely based but it, this guy it's, this, it's it's the same kind of premise i mean you know bad guys come into a kid's house right. kids kids alone and he fights off the bad guys but I, I mean look you can't copyright a premise you know what i mean i'm but he does have kind of the same sort of like he's not quite as precocious as as Kevin. as yeah as um i wanted to say Haley joel osmond <laughs> but macaulay, macaulay Culkin. Culkin. um but but he is that same type of role where he's you know smarter than the bad guys um and and so this and this ensues for a while they go over the the santa claus wreaks habit he, he kills the the groundskeepers he kills a few other people, but mainly he's just a creep for the most part. He's never really all that overly menacing. He has a couple of chances to really hurt Thomas and really hurt the grandfather, and he doesn't take those chances. And then, you know, then he's off, and that's basically it. I mean, it's an interesting, I don't know, interesting is the right term. I mean, it's, I, I will say, look, I'm glad that I've seen it. I wouldn't necessarily ever go back to it. I, I think it's a fun little artifact of a movie. And it's fun to say you're pulling out this French kind of Home Alone Christmas film. And there's not a lot of like Christmas films that Christmas films either, you know, they can go a bunch of different ways. But there's not a lot of like underseen Christmas films that are really kind of like you can put things in your back pocket and say, hey, oh, have you seen Deadly yeah. Games? And, and this this is what that this is what that movie is. It is a very fun movie to pull out of your pocket and say, hey, 
if you're looking for something different to watch on on Christmas and you don't mind a dog getting stabbed in the neck, then this is the movie. Yeah, check this out. It's fun. It's 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 it is a it is a you know 95 minute watch and it will be one of the things you you can put it in your back pocket now and say and throw it out to someone who hasn't seen it at a party. It's definitely one of those. I mean, I I enjoyed it. It was fun. I don't need to see it again. But, but but I will mention it, you know, to, to other people. And I and I think that there's enough good in it to, to yeah, make it watchable. There's enough interesting in it to to sit through it and see and, and, where it goes. And, and it see is what happens. definitely a fun party movie. It is definitely yes. a, a, to see with the crowd. Um, I know Joe Bob Briggs did, a, um, you know, put his commentary on it on Shudder. You know, I, uh, it was recent. So, I mean, so there's there's that as well. So, I mean, like, again, it, it's one of those movies like if you have a group of people watching it would definitely would be a fun yeah. movie to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a conversation piece. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't have a whole lot to say about it. I enjoyed it. I thought like these weird montages and the weird moments of Thomas, like sitting in a chair and pondering like what has happened. I, I just, I mean, they, it just took me out of it. Well, and... it, it completes those sins, right. Of like, if it, it, it's like, it is clearly like this guy would go on to do TV stuff afterwards. Mm-hmm. And he did he, and do what American do American stuff as well. Like, but it has that sin of like a voiceover or a montage or a flashback scene immediately after the scene had just happened. So like it, it you know, it just brings you right <laughs> back to, it, it doesn't trust its audience enough. And it also doesn't know, it doesn't do enough with its plot of this kid against this guy that, that Santa Claus should be more menacing other than just being a creep. Yeah. And and he and and we should be given more of um an outline of the house and have a better feel for what Thomas is is like going through because again you feel like Thomas can completely like wreck this guy whenever he wants to were he to given like the you know, and he, vice he, versa right right exactly so there's no like with Home Alone. I mean, obviously, that was just a comedy of errors the entire time. But you always felt like Kevin had the upper hand on that. Right. And Kevin was never really trying to kill. I mean, and, and so that, that's the other thing, too, is this movie like plays in emotional swings as Kevin is not Kevin. But Thomas comes back and he has an opportunity to kill Santa, but he has this love for Santa. And he also I think the the the. Um, the intriguing part of it was that the idea that his mom put in his head about, well, this is this is your fault because, because this is an ogre. You turned right. him into you an turned ogre. him into an ogre. Right. But there's too many confusing things like the maze inside the house that Thomas gets stuck in. For the some the art museum. Right. That he's looking for his mom's bedroom, and then like you pan <laughs> up in a, ta- in a in a in a weird framing shot, and you see that there's artwork all over the floor. It, it, there's like really really odd choices. And the this interior feels like design a, is is not consistent. Right. It feels like a Bonnie Tyler video. I mean, basically. Yeah. So, so yeah. Yes. And it's shot weird. It, I mean, like, and I guess weird is not maybe the right term, but I would really love to pick his brain about why there are all these Batman, you know, 1960s Batman angles in this movie, because most of the time, and I don't think it's because you're <clears throat> supposed to be seeing this from Thomas's angle no. because it's because a lot of it, it's slanted, but it's all you're you're looking up, you know, at most of the shots, you're looking up at people. And so it's it, it seems like it's for style, for style's sake. It, it's it, and, and it, it feels it, like a cheap trick. Right. right. We're going to heighten tension this way rather than do it through narrative devices. Yeah. And there's there's yeah, there's a ton of character. There's a ton of smoke and there's a ton of, you know, you know, just like fuzzy backgrounds and yeah. things like that that you, that you see in sort of gothic horror movies. So right. Kind of tropes, right. So. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's worth watching and it's worth telling your friends that you've seen it so you can be the cool guy or girl at the party. And that's and that's what we're here to do for you. Yes. Is we're here to help you. We're here to make you cool. cooler. Yes. All right. Let's move on to the next one. <laughs> um, oh, the next three. I can't I can't wait. Those were the two that I was like, all right, here. What are we going to do? Falling for Christmas. Falling for <clears throat> Christmas. 
Okay, so Lindsay Lohan plays Sierra. She is a spoiled heiress to a hotel magnate. Uh, her father has created a job out of thin air for her. She is the VP of Atmosphere, which I swear to God has to exist somewhere oh, now. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely does. So while her while her father's away on business, Sierra goes on a hiking excursion with her influencer boyfriend, Tad. Whoever's playing Tad, I feel like he's the only one having fun in this movie. Oh, for sure. I mean, he's he a, is he's having a such Glee, a good time. Right? He's like, I, I didn't watch Glee, but I, I, but, I, but I know the name. His name is Cord Overstreet. I think he's okay. Glee. Well, he's having a really good time. So they're on the top of, they, they're on this. He's like, the hum- only one in the right movie. Right. Okay. Yes. Like yeah. he understands this role. Well, you know who and else has fun is Ralph. Oh, which one is Ralph? He's the ice fisherman. The guy oh, that's okay. in the ice. Oh, shed. yes, yes. He's having yes, yeah, yeah, he's having a really good time yeah. too. But no, you're right. He's the only one. Everyone else in the is right not movie. an actor or is just trying to like resurrect a career that doesn't exist. <laughs> well, Jack Wagner maybe is having a good time. Probably. The dad yeah. who was on all of the soap operas. So oh. I didn't interrupt. No, no, no. Anyway, okay. So <clears throat> they go out on this on this hiking trip and they're on top of a ledge and Tad proposes with this ring that is like 18 sizes too big for her. And you can see how much he cares. So as he proposes, a big old wind knocks Sierra down the hill where Jake, the owner of a cute bed and breakfast next to her father's lodge, um, finds her and she has amnesia. Of course. <laughs> so Jake takes her to the hospital where she's a giant pain in the ass and the doctor's like, she can't stay here, right? There's there's no room. She has to go. And the sheriff is so like, she can't Jesus come with like us. Thing that's going right? <laughs> no room, at, so the no room at the end. So Jake takes her back to his lodge uh, and promptly puts her to work as a cleaning lady. Uh, I think it's I think it's really cute when the when the privileged class tries to do labor. It, yeah, it's a great montage. I'll give you that. <laughs> so, uh, you know where this is going. Jake and Sierra fall in love. Oh, also but her name is Sarah now. Right. They've changed. She can't remember her name. So because Jake is a widower. Of course, with a daughter and his mother-in-law helps run the inn because it was actually her husband's inn that the husband left to Jake and his wife as a wedding present. What's his wife die of? Like just general malaise. I don't know. (laughs) Generic death. I don't think we ever know. She's died of death. She's just dead. Um, She caught the death. During all this time, Tad is lost in the forest and he laments this fact by shouting what kind of a forest doesn't have Wi-Fi. So he meets Ralph in this forest. who's an ice fisherman. Um, Sierra's dad comes back and he's like, where's my daughter? And the sheriff finds Tad and Sierra's dad and says, oh, I know where your daughter is. Come with me. And they promptly go and bust up a fundraiser for Jake's Inn that Sierra slash Sarah had kind of helped conjure up. Immediately, Sierra remembers who she is. She says, golly, sorry, Jake. Gotta go. I'm out. Uh, (laughs) Turns out I'm fucking rich. (laughs) And she splits. Next morning, she's doing all her own housework, right? All of her minions are like, oh my God, are you okay? What are you doing? She decides eventually that she does not want to marry Tad. Tad's kind of broken up, but then it seems like he hooks up with like the valet or or something. He's going to go on his influencer way. Jake's daughter convinces him to go find true love again or the mom mother-in-law convinces him i don't know it gets very convoluted jake runs to the other lodge and he's like oh hey good to see you cool and Lindsay lohan's like no i love you here let's kiss under this mistletoe and Lindsay lohan's dad and jake's daughter come running out to meet them too and it's a merry happy christmas cue the blooper reel um yeah 
So this movie is obviously it's overboard meets it's a wonderful life. meets obviously been just soap opera. Had this movie had been as sinister as overboard where Jake had actively realized who she was and was trying to keep her. That would have been a movie that I would have liked to have seen. Yeah, because earlier in this film, Jake goes to Beauregard, who's Sierra's dad, and wants him to invest in his lodge as kind of a feeder partnership, right? People who can't ski very well stay at his lodge. Then when they get better, they go to the bigger lodge. Yeah, they graduate. And Beauregard's like, nice idea. No. Also, I was surprised that he wasn't more of a dick in this film. The dad. The yeah. dad. Yeah, this is innocuous. This is such a cookie cutter. Like, no one's offensive. Like, the the biggest bad guy is the social media influencer boyfriend. And even he's, he's just an idiot. He's Yeah, he's just a mo, right? It's not even like a, it's not even a big deal. Which is fine. I understand who this movie exists. This is for tween girls or tween moms or people who just want to turn. (laughs) (laughs) Wrong movie. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Mothers of tweens. (laughs) Right. It, it It is people who like milk and toast. And that's basically it. This is a white bread movie for white bread people who don't want to have to think about anything or people who love or the guys who do riff tracks who are just aching to tear this thing a new asshole. Right. Look, this it's innocuous in every way it possibly can. It is, it is not interesting in any way, shape or form. There's some things to pick apart about this movie. Like when they, when she gets to the bed and breakfast, they look for her real family for all of about zero seconds. (laughs) Nope. Do not even, there is no effort whatsoever whatsoever (laughs) to find out where the fuck she actually belongs. And she doesn't even seem to care either. (laughs) She's like, this is fine. Everything's fine. You guys seem nice. (laughs) Earlier in the movie too, Jake had spilled cocoa on her dress, although she had giant sunglasses and a big hat on and they were yelling at each, or she was yelling at him and sort of storming off in a huff. So I guess that makes sense why he didn't recognize her. I was trying to make that work in my head because I'm like, well, and also same color hair. Basically, the entire plot is the little girl's fault because Santa, she made a wish because she made a wish for her for to basically for. I mean, we don't get this on film, but she makes a. I guarantee you she makes a wish for a new mom. Well, she says it later. That's true. She's at at the end when that convinces him to run off. But she we don't really know. She writes the wish down. She puts it on the tree. And then and then Santa, the real Santa is actually in this film and he sort of does his nose thing. But because this little girl made a wish, two people nearly died. I know. And Santa so, would never let them die. Well, that's the other thing. It's like Tad is out there, and I'm like, that dude would have died like three oh, times by for now. For sure, for I mean, sure. At, at least. Um, this whole thing like felt like it was filmed on a back lot of the Macy's Day Thanksgiving Day Parade. Yeah. I mean, it just it's just garish. It's kind of on a like, float. Yeah, and like all of the other actors who aren't named actors feel like they're newscasters or just extras that showed up on set one day. Nothing about this looks real. Like, again, you live in this world where you live in a huge ski lodge and a bed and breakfast and a town around it that can support both of these and at no point. And again, we're given the idea that that Sierra went off on her own, so no one's thinking that she's missing. But, it, but the other flip side of that is they don't go to 
to the police department and say, hey, you know who this person is? Well, the sheriff is in the hospital, right? The sheriff that's sees true. her. That's true. Yeah, but, yeah. but but again, but a single sheriff. I mean, and, like, just- and then he, but you're going to tell me that the mayor of that town doesn't know. The richest. The richest dude's daughter. I mean, because you know that this guy Beauregard, who owns this giant lodge that is probably a big part of the local economy. Yeah, it has to the, be. The, the, the mayor knows this dude. The mayor knows this dude and who his family is and what happened to his wife and is always looking for money, for campaign money from this for guy. Sure. Right. So he's just like, oh, who are you? Two things that struck out to me or stuck out to me were when she gets her memory back and he goes to see her at the big at the big hotel or big resort. <clears throat> He mocks her condition. Like he holds up this <laughs> mistletoe and says, oh, you know what? I forgot what this was all about. And she's like, I, I, she should have like broken her face with her eye roll at that point. But he's like, hey, that's a serious medical condition, you ass. That I that you basically used me for labor, you know, for unpaid labor for a good couple of weeks. But she was able to learn about the plight of the working man, which will now make her a better yeah. Upper management CEO. The nineteen seventies sitcom of housework <laughs> montage. Yeah. I, 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 th- th- these types of movies, and again, like them if you like them. I just can't get past the 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 ridiculousness of all of the scenarios. I can get past putting too much soap in the in the washing machine because that's happened in a hundred different movies in a hundred different ways. Whatever. Okay, that's a trope. Fine. The the when she's cleaning the toilet and water is actively coming out of the toilet because she got a brush stuck in it. That doesn't happen. That's not a thing. Like to- <laughs> water never comes out of a toilet like that. And she and like and this is the thing is that. She she's so useless as a human being that she can't do anything. She doesn't know how to crack eggs. Like, how does she know how to do anything? But again, like in in these these aren't even played as like social commentary. No, it's not. And that's and it's it's all played for just broad, like ridiculous. Ha ha amnesia jokes. Right. 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 But yeah, it's never touched on. And I, I think that is one of the bigger failings of this film is that it touches on all of these kind of cornerstones of our sort of modern trappings. People wanting to be influencers, people peddling things like how you're trending as like commerce, people not knowing how inflation costs groceries or how to crack eggs. And and it just does nothing with them except like, look at this guy. He's so funny. He would have died out here, but that's okay. I, I, and I think, Tim, I don't know if this, again, I'm not the market for the abundance of Christmas movies and that's, this exists, this whole Hallmark thing that exists nowadays that where you're just churning these things out. The way that I see them from an outsider perspective is that they're all Nicholas Sparks movies. Like one girl goes, goes into a, a little town and, and you know, there's a widow, widow over there. Are they all played for these broad, stupid laughs? Or, yeah. or I mean, cause again, I can understand liking that thing, right. like liking a romance story of a girl who's kind of plucky, but like trying to find her way. And she meets a handsome dude. Harley Quinn romance. I totally get right. right? right. And I can understand making those over and over and over again, because you can just it's like Romeo and Juliet. You can just place it and put it in every any scenario. You can put all kinds of different flavors on it. Churn these things out. They don't cost anything to make. And there's an audience for it. You know, 30, 31 days out of the year. Fine. I get right. I get the idea behind making that. And this thing. I, I, but but if they're all like this, I can't imagine people going back to this well over and over and over again. Because why would you go to another one of these? Like, why would you watch this again? 
why, why would you watch anything that was like this with this kind of broad, like just kind of dumbing down humor? I get it if it's played straight. If it is a soap right. opera and someone got amnesia and there's there's a mysterious twin that pops up at the end and, you know, and a beautiful woman is a, you know, it has to perform brain surgery on her sister and put the brain inside <laughs> her own head. I get all of that. I get why you would watch that. But this idea of like water shooting out of the toilet uh-huh. and like this precocious like little kid who's like kind of a jackass and like you know and again the the mom who the the mother-in-law who's still like really you know rooting for her son-in-law but even though he kind of sucks too like they all suck right you know what and no one talks about and what's really bizarre about this movie and like you really want to flip it like the guy that she falls in love with looks exactly like her dad and they never say a damn thing about it nope but they they, they, they look identical yes they do (laughs) Like, so the guy that she leaves, which is a rich, successful, again, you can tell me what you wanted to say about influencers, what, what kind of success they quote unquote, they actually have, but he is a successful, rich guy. And again, they don't really love each other, but that's fine. But the guy that she falls in love with, which again, after one under, under ridiculous circumstances and after like, you know, a week now, the guy that she's going to spend her time with looks identical to her father yeah. is creepy as F and the fact <laughs> now we're not going to say fuck anymore. Yeah, yeah the, found, the foundation of that relationship does not seem does not seem great. And 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 I want to go back and just say that I don't I don't think every film has to have something some kind of like message about about society or about like work or privilege or whatever or anything but i do think this movie brings it up and plays it as something else and i think that's that's why i sort of i that's why i point that out because the reason she can't crack eggs is because she's never had to do anything for herself ever it's not because she has amnesia she's never had to do anything so she's like what's a fucking egg that's not what an omelet looks like and, and, and no, no, i no, think I that like that, but that's but, but also <laughs> you're a human being in, in human skin like this is that's an, that is an alien thing well, to no, understand I, that is like no it's a, stu- it it's a stupid like, joke anyway right it, it's <laughs> right. a callback to the don't worry darling like empty egg i did not mean to reference that movie again i thought that i had like forgotten it okay can we stop talking about this well I will, okay, yeah, I I wanna, my no. last point about this is one thing i wrote in my notes was i, was, I wanted say good for Lindsay because I think that girl's been through some shit and and, and I think you you unite that um, that the popular culture has put her through some shit granted she's done drugs and she's made some bad decisions I think she did those at a really young age oh we all have I'm I'm real but but also she was put on a on display and like the if there's anything that like why does a Wilhelm scream like really want to like castigate I really kind of our 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 treatment of young female starlets in the you know in the 2000s and 2010s was abhorrent and the fact that she can come out of that and still be alive and yeah. making films this is not I, I think it's unfortunate again and this is just my pers- my opinion which I shouldn't necessarily say it's unfortunate it's my it's my it's unfortunate for me who saw her as a really talented comedic actress in Mean Girls and some of the and even in her younger I mean like the parent trap, parent she, trap. Was, mm. she was really good in those it's unfortunate that this is where this has led her, but this is a fine career. And if she's happy and and and, and then do these things, and if this wants to be like a, a market that she does for that she carves out for herself, great. Um, you know, I'm not going to be watching, but I wish no. her all the best. No, I I, <laughs> I, I think this is. I think if you're listening, Lindsay, that's that's my my message to you. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with this more. I, I'm 100 on board with this idea. I thought she was an interesting actor too, and was curious to see what she was going to sort of develop into. And I think it is. Look, when you're a teenager, early 20s, and you're given a ton of money, and 
people surround you with the wrong type of people because look when you're when you're a teen actor you don't know who to surround yourself with maybe some of these young women have have learned from this but but you don't know and if your parents are shit heels and if your manager is off i I, and again i don't know this one but right but these were shit right i mean i i knew that but i don't know who who were like her agent manager was right but 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 these are people surrounding her with other people with bad with 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 bad influence well, and we took such str- delight in the downfall, right? Well, this is the uh, this is the other thing, which that is so sickening. This celebrity culture, we love to see someone fall. We love to see someone turn into look look what we look what we do with Britney Spears, and now here we are, like free Britney. Well, it's our it's, yeah, it's we're same, partly it's, to blame it's, it's the same because breath, right? we it's, we drink that stuff up like we just can't get enough. I mean, it is it is some kind of elixir that we're just like take them down, let's see them fucking fall into a puddle well, and we do it with defenseless people oh i mean these yeah. these young girls who all i mean again they all they wanted to be was and young girls and i don't mean that in a demeaning sense i, I just it's right and and we and we and we almost invite them to like we just point out the puddles and say hey step in that yeah. and like or, or, or we push them into it right I, it's, look i will never know what it is like to be a woman at, at any age and so I can't even imagine the kind of stressors, what it's like to be hypersexualized at such a young age, what it's like to have every eyeball on your breasts. Right? Well, and people constantly asking who you're having sex with, if you're having like our I, I hope that we've moved past this. But we have this of like. Yeah. I mean, but when we had, you know, you talk about like uh, people wearing purity rings and like there was such a like a there was such a concentration on the virginity of these young starlets and st- and stars even i mean at that it was just like what the fuck we're, why, what are we thinking but that also mirrors what we do in regular society yeah we we I have know, these puritanical beliefs i mean how many how many high school girls are wearing purity rings or making like or signing promise contracts and it's like and it's like these health professionals that are in schools and by that i don't really mean health professionals i mean administrators who think they're health professionals it's like they didn't it's like they can't remember what it was like when their hormones were actually starting to go it's fucking stupid we don't teach anybody anything about what's going on this has just become sort of like sex ed corner now i think <laughs> <laughs> but, but i mean it's the same it, it's we don't teach people what's going on with their own bodies and and this idea of this unattainable idea of purity right and right, this unattainable right. idea of, of of sacred virginity in the same way that we don't teach them about alcohol and drugs right and and so these two things go hand in hand with someone as a, as a young celebrity as well we're here to solve all the problems we are i just will help solve our problems <laughs> so good job Lindsay. i hope i hope if christmas movies are where you want to be i hope you make a million of them and they all do great next movie. um two left two down which one it'll be which one will it be the will will tell us Oh, mighty will. Black Christmas. Black Christmas for Black saving holiday Christmas. handcuffs for the last. I do want to spin the wheel one last time because I just want to hear that again. But um, Black Christmas, Bob Clark's seminal 1974 slasher. Look, there's not much to this, man. You're in a sorority house. Killer's inside the house, man. You don't know why, what, what the fuck's happening. They're getting phone calls. Girls start dropping like flies. There's a girl outside the sorority house that drops like flies. You don't see that's off screen for some reason. And... Then we're, and the cops are befuddled. The girls are befuddled. We're just trying to figure this shit out. 
this movie kicks ass. I love this movie. It's it's so and again, this is a movie that you watch it today. It's easy to dismiss because you're like, oh, I've seen that shit a hundred thousand times. <clears throat> but why would I nineteen seventy four in fucking Toronto? Bob's <laughs> right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so Bob Clark had done two other horror films, um, Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things and Death Dream. Have you ever seen Death Dream? No. Okay. So Death Dream, and this is why I kind of like gravitate towards horror and I really I really kind of champion this this era. Like you talk about what Jordan Peele's doing, all these things. It re, and again, we've talked about it, but you know, opening up avenues for queer stories and all kinds of different stories. Death Dream is about a young man who dies in Vietnam and then comes back because his mom wishes that he doesn't die. And he ends up flying back and starts taking wreaking havoc on the town and starts killing people in, in the town. And was really one of the first films ever to ever talk about PTSD. I mean, to like, and it framed it in a horror bent, but it was talking about PTSD and how these how these men that came back from Vietnam, and this is in 70 fucking two, oh, man, yeah. or 73. I can't remember exactly, but he was close around this time. But, and so like, Laying new, laying new ground, and then so this movie comes out, and again, so Death Dream, totally shouldn't play with dead things. Didn't do well for him. This was his first big hit, and you know, and if you don't know who Bob Clark is, Bob Clark's got one of the most interesting directorial mm-hmm. careers of all time. He would do a Christmas story, um, and he would do a summer story, the follow up to Christmas story. But he would also do like Porky's and Porky's Two and Porky's yeah. Revenge. Uh, you know, so he was, and then he would go and do super babies and baby geniuses and like all these shitty ass movies at the end of his career. He was all over the place. Um, but also directed some of the highest grossing Canadian comedies, teen sex comedies. Porky's was the highest grossing yeah. teen sex comedy until American Pie came out. I mean, that was, <clears throat> you know, two, three decades later. Christmas Story is a film that is played every year. Ad nauseum. Ad nauseum on, on Thanksgiving and, 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 and during Christmas. And <clears throat> it, it, this guy is... Has just an amazing, I mean, just an amazing, amazing career. Uh, he's done some really, really interesting things. And he's done, like I said, the things that he's done that are really, really bad. Man, the guy swings for the fences because they, mm-hmm. they are really, really terrible. Again, we're not talking about all of those. I think I do think <laughs> check out Death Dream. It is not a great, it's not the greatest I'll have film. I to find it. That sounds really But it is an interesting, interesting. movie. Huh. Um, yeah, so you got Black Christmas. You got a young Andrea Martin <laughs> with a kick-ass fro. She's dating Gene Shalit. This is in... In, and if you don't know who Gene Shalit is, look him up. That's her boyfriend. It's not really her boyfriend, the guy that looks like her boyfriend, uh, her boyfriend looks like in this movie. This is a, a college that is basically for 45-year-old students. They all look oh, yeah. like they're they, they, well, they're on their third marriage. It was, and it was 74. And if you look at Margot Kidder, <laughs> she's always drinking and smoking in this film. Right, I yeah. Mean, and, and, and and rumor has it that, that she was actually drunk. During she had scenes. a lot of fun, quote unquote, is what she said on this film. So she's, yeah. And she's like the hard edged sorority sister. She's probably the, the senior who's seen it all. She starts getting the phone, like they start well, getting they, the phone calls and they're all like, so they get to start getting these like sexual phone calls, basically saying, I want to lick your see you next Tuesday and like I'm going to stick things certain things and so all the girls have started to come to like gather around when this when the phone rings and this guy calls because they all want to hear it and then Marco Kiddo basically tells them off you know and 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 it's been fairly innocuous the I mean like innocuous it's obviously frightening for them and it's disturbing but 
it's you know it hasn't resulted in any sort of violence. Or any and, sort and they of call action. him the moaner. So there's this idea that it's repetitive, right? And so as we're entering into Christmas break, we start to meet some of the girls. We you know we meet Olivia Hussey. She is pregnant with her um, with Kira Delay's boy. You know with 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 her boyfriend who plays played by Kira Delay. Uh, he wants her to get. An, oh, does he want her to keep it? And she wants an abortion. Yeah. And and, and this is. A, I'll let you keep going. But this is what this is a really interesting note in this. Also, this and, is very shortly after Roe v. Wade. Yeah. And Bob Clark has mentioned that this wasn't really anything that was a political statement he really was just trying to have like two people who were of the age to have this conversation and he needed something to have them talk about during the downtime of of, you know between the killings essentially but again like movies are interpretation machines and i'm looking at this movie through a giant feminist lens oh for sure Uh, for sure because and because of a moment like that where you know she's like i'm pregnant i'm having an abortion and he's like blah 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 my baby too blah 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 my dreams what are you doing you selfish woman and she's like I have things I want to do with my life. Okay. Yeah. I have lots of stuff I want to do and I'm not ready for this yet. So sorry. The, the, I, the women in this movie are very unapologetically who they are. Like Margaret Kidder is a, is a hard drinking, hard smoking. She's the cool girl. girl. Right. Olivia right. Hussey is, you know, but, probably the, the ingenue kind of, but she's, and, and, and she's, but she's, she's the pregnant. pretty one. And she, yeah, she has designs on her life. Andrea and, yeah. Martin's the smart one. Right. And then Claire, I forget the actress, but she is like the good girl. Right. I mean, but right. they, they all fit so, in these types, but like, I think in a very kind of subversive, interesting way. And they have uh, a, another hard drinking, hard smoking house mother <laughs> who basically just has, has bottles, bottles of booze stashed everywhere, you know, hidden inside oh. of books like Shawshank Redemption. Oh, <laughs> and, and, and as one of the girls, as Olivia Hussey's father comes to look for her. She's like hiding posters. It's of like, Claire's girl. Is it, oh, it's Claire. Yeah, okay, yeah, so yeah. Um, he's look. He's looking for her because she's gone. Oh, that's right. Because she was the first one to go missing. Yeah. Um, he comes to look for her, and so one of the girls ends up. I guess they they so basically everyone is is clearing out uh, for Christmas for Christmas break, and um, Claire is the new. She's the good girl, but she's also the new girl. And Margot Kidder's kind of giving her shit about being the new girl and kind of being prissy and not you know sorority house, not a nunnery or whatever. Right, she's right. And and so she everyone clears out of the house. Um, Claire hears a noise upstairs. Uh, she goes upstairs to investigate. It turns out, and this is not a reveal. This happens in the credits. You know that you know the killer is inside of the house the entire time. He's up in the attic, or at least up in whatever would be the attic in this in this sorority house. She goes upstairs to look for him. Or, no, no, no. Actually, he's in the closet. The the the, the house mother goes upstairs. She goes and so here she goes to investigate a noise. He puts a plastic bag over her head and then drags her up in the attic and puts her in a in a rocking chair. So she's in the rocking chair with a plastic bag over her head the entire movie. You've seen the poster of the movie with a wreath with a girl in a that that's that's Claire. Uh, a little later on, the house mother goes up and she gets hooked in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand where that hook came from. But I, I, don't, I don't either. Yeah, but she gets hooked in the face. Um, <laughs> Uh, Margot Kidder starts having, and so it, throughout all of this, we, we because the father comes and no one knows where Claire is. The police get involved in a great role by John Saxon. If you don't know, who John Saxon is he played the dad in Nightmare on Elm Street, but he's he's also kind of a stalwart of all these seventies action films and, and horror films. And, so and lots of TV too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Inflation, in, Invasion of the Flesh Eaters is one mm-hmm. of my favorite ones of his. And also he's an alligator, which I fucking love. Alligator, alligator's so good. 
Um, but so the police start getting involved. And then, of course, they brought in and they're trying to track the phone calls. But the killer but the killer won't st- stay on the phone long enough. And then, of course, they start to think that Kira DeLay, who is Olivia Hussey's boyfriend, it may be the killer because they, because she's pregnant and that he may have that may have triggered something in him and that he's trying to kill off the girls and that he's tracking Olivia Hussey. Um, so all of these murders start happening and eventually they find out that they, they trace the calls long enough to realize that the, in a great scene where, where the guy's like, Hey, it's coming from, you know, six blah, blah, blah place. And he's like, no, no, no. That's where the calls are ending up. And he's like, that's where the calls are originating as well. And like, and, and so again, of the tropes of the calls are coming from inside the house. Again, the first one of these films to ever do mm-hmm. this, this is four years before Halloween, right? So right. this is, no one is, no one has seen this type of, of what really, I mean, and to be fair, it's not the first real slash. I mean, there, there've been these types of sure. movies throughout, but, but kicking off this genre and this wave, of course, Halloween success really pushes the needle and, and, and it moves the needle and, and pushes all of these, you know, copycats out, but black Christmas laid the groundwork for, for all of these. And, and so the, the calls are coming from inside the house, Olivia Hussey, um, eventually, well, so Margaret Kidder starts having bad dreams and, and she ends up getting killed with a glass unicorn. unicorn. Um, Olivia Hussey. And, and so Kira DeLay comes to the house. Uh, he gets killed and Olivia Hussey basically gets, gets hurt but but not basically knocked out. So and that's basically and that's essentially the end of the movie. They they blame all the murders on Peter because he was there and they think Olivia Hussey has killed him um in self-defense and so they kind of write it off and we're left with the credits and we're left with the killer still upstairs in the house and the phone ringing right <clears throat> as everything goes. One of the things that I love about this film and that you see in Halloween too is you don't know motivation. You have no idea. You don't even see the killer. You never see the killer. I and I I Absolutely love that. You see his hand, you see his eye looking and it's, it's, and if we're looking at this through, or if I'm looking at this through like a feminist lens, I mean, there, right. The evil of men is sort of unnameable. It's unidentifiable, but it's there all the time. It is. Well, it and is. it's, and I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. On you, but that the, the idea of, of the men who are watching that you see the kills through the point of view of the killer, which again, has been done a ton now. That wasn't that necessarily common. You are the men watching this movie are the killers. Are the killers? Yes. Yeah. yeah. You're the one. You're the creeps. You're the one right. who's imposing the violence. And the men that are supposed to help are completely buffoonish and impotent, right? I mean, even the even the John Saxon detective who who understands and has a brain and, and wants to do good, it can't stop any of this. Right. Yeah. And so I I I love that about this film. Um, I love Margot Kidder in this film. <laughs> I, I said this to you last night where I just, I, I have a thing for Margot Kidder in this, in this movie, much in the same way that I still have a thing for Courtney Love. So just hot messes, <laughs> just hot messes, smell like cigarettes and booze. And yeah, girls, I just, that, girls that you could probably end up with, but girls that definitely, and I say girls, I don't mean it to be a derogatory term, but that you could end up with that you think that would give you a shot, but also would not give two shits about you. Either. No, no, just like, fine. You're whatever, just, dude. you're going like, to get destroyed and you're right. going to enjoy it. You're right. just, you, you have they, to yeah, sort of sign a, up for that destruction. Right? It's a spider in a way. It's a fly in a web kind of scenario. <laughs> like, yeah, you sure you, you absolutely have a shot. And yes, I'm actually going to eat your heart out later on. <laughs> um, something, something that I found, something else I found really interesting. And, and, and I found there was some, some interesting articles written about this, about this film that have been, I think, explained better 
by feminist scholars, but the sort of hinting at the bisexuality of Barb, of Margot Kidder's mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. There's this great scene where... It would make sense because of her anger towards all of the sexuality of all the other girls right. that are there. Or the lack of, or, or, right? right? Right, yeah. Um, but they're having dinner with Claire's dad at the sorority house. Barb, Margot Kidder, is loaded. She's on the couch looking at what... Looks like a playboy, some kind of centerfold, this nude woman. And she's not making comments. She's not sort of being crude about it. She's just looking at it. And then she gets up. And I think this is my favorite line in the whole film. And she asks, you know, Claire's dad, did you know that there's a species of turtle that can screw for three days? And I can't even get three minutes. (laughs) 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 So, so there's this like, yeah. And, and she's sort of upset at, at the, the kind of overall virginity of some of the other girls are sort of the, I, I, she almost cl- like, like puts it like prudishness of some of the, I mean, there's, there's a weird, right. And you know, she's also just between. angry about basically everything. everything. Like she, hates, she hides everything through booze and dark humor and right. sarcasm. She hates her situation. She hates her university. She hates the town the university is in. She says at one point when um, they're worried about, I forget exactly the, the context, but her point is, oh, you can't rape a townie. <laughs> Which is such a like a weird, delicious, like mean line that you would yeah, say. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> she's like, it's I you're almost disappointed. Oh, I definitely was disappointed when she gets off in the film. Yeah. I would have loved to her at, for her to have been the final girl. Obviously, you know that Olivia Hussey is going to be the final girl right. in this case. Right. But and, and, and Barb, just by 1970s morals and, and these morals of these horror films is going to get off at some right. point. But it would have been really nice for her to have been like this. I don't know what I don't know what moral stance or what what messages you're putting there, but it would have been nice for her to have like survived right. this. Well, I mean, I think I think there's just so I, I, it's such a rich text in this way, and the way that she teases the desk sergeant by giving her the giving him the phone number of the sorority house. Right? There's a new exchange, Fe Fellatio two oh eight eight. Right? And, and and the and the desk sergeant has no idea, but the way she plays this is just it's great, and it's and it's her kind of saying, I'm not afraid of this. I'm I'm not shy about this. I'm not ashamed about any of this. Yeah. Which which again, I mean, all of these women in their own way are working towards a kind of independence and possess a kind of strength. Even Claire, right? The 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 new girl, the good girl who has to figure out how to tell her parents about her boyfriend. Right. And and none of the deaths come from a failing of the women. One I mean, so like they don't make stupid mistakes. They don't you know, go down, go up, this, go upstairs when they shouldn't go. Look, Claire goes and looks for a, 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 a noise, but that's and she's packing to leave. Too, right. So it's right. So she's there by herself. And, and, but again, it's not, she doesn't seem to, she's caught by surprise. Margot Kidder is asleep. I mean, Olivia Hussey is attacked. I mean, like the, the, the house mother, maybe, I guess, but, but, but even then she's also thinking that Claire may be in the house somewhere. Right. So again, none of this is done by design. Whereas, whereas you see like, Something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where the girl is just constantly being chased. She's constantly in peril. She's not given even given a voice. And I'm not. I, I like. I like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm not going to bash Texas Chainsaw no. Massacre necessarily, but but for these movies where you know where Scream puts the you know the meta spin on it, where some dumb girl with big boobs running up the stairs when she should be running out the door. Right. There's none of that in this. None of this is deserved. None of it's right. a moral failing on these girls' parts where we're trying to make some sort of message of premarital sex or moral, you know, right. you know, impurity of some sort. It, it, it's none of that's there in this. And 
Yeah, it's it's a it's really like for this to come out of the gate like that, and then for it to become subverted so much into this 1980s like Reaganomics politics of 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 purity for the, for the next decade of of horror films is really kind of bizarre. Yeah, it's really weird. I mean, this is something else I love about that this film is that there is no blame put on them, right? And it's just saying like, look, the the evil that lurks in all these men, right? It's it's. They're lecherous, they're possessive, they're obscene, but they're also faceless. And it's the and, men. And you can't, and it's the men. And well, and it's and the it's men who all breathe these at the men. end, right? It's the, it's the men that relax at the end and let their guard down when the terror is still there. They didn't right. solve anything. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, this this movie should be studied a lot much more than it is. I mean, it, it should be. Olivia Hussey starred in Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet in 68, and they originally offered the role of the house mother to Betty Davis. Yes. Oh, another interesting tidbit <laughs> yeah. about this movie. So it was going to premiere. So this was based on a series of Can- a, a Canadian um, serial killer right. uh, named Wayne Borden. And so when this was going Sounds to sound like a serial killer, <laughs> right? And I meant to say this is a boot Wayne Borden. But I missed <laughs> that joke. When they were going to premiere this on TV in 1978, they were going to do it in January 1978. A couple weeks before they were going to premiere it, two sorority girls got killed in Florida State, and then some other girls got attacked in the area. That serial killer, Ted Bundy. Oh my god! So okay, a little, little bit of trivia. So well, the final film is spin the reel. Film. Let's just see what it is. Maybe maybe this won't come up, and we don't have to talk about this one. Whoa! It sounded like a. It sounded like a asteroids or. I know it wants us to talk about Die Hard again. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Our last film. Our last film. <laughs> And I, I don't. This is not even my least favorite film of this of this of this set. My last film, our last film, is Holiday in Handcuffs, starring Melissa Joan Hart and Mario Lopez. I don't know where this originated. This was a 2006 film, yeah. and I've got a little bit about the director as well. Uh, essentially, Melissa Joan Hart is an artist. She's living in a ridiculously overpriced. Well, for her, she would not be able to afford this loft wherever she's living. Uh, but that's she the lives, magic of these movies. But too. she, but she lives there. She's an artist. She's dating a, you know, a man who is an up and comer and a rich guy, and she's going to take him home for the holidays to kind of get her parents off of her back. Alas, she goes to the cafe where she's working and her boyfriend's supposed to pick her up and they're supposed to go up to the Poconos or to the hills or wherever the hell that New Yorkers go to <laughs> have Christmas. Right. Yeah. But far enough away from society that you can't walk away from it. And he decides to break up with her. All the while, in the beginning of the film, she's perming her hair for some reason because that's a thing that she's got a job interview. Do. Oh, that's Her dad right. set that's up right. a job, right. job interview with, so she, with a neighbor, a right. former neighbor. Of so as one does, you perm your hair right before a job interview. She gets called from her mom. The perm stays in. Or I guess she's just curling her hair. Um, the perm sticks too hard. She and and so because she's on the phone with her mother and and that causes some sort of time issue. She you you get the idea that this girl is just just a major fuck up. I mean, like she can't do <laughs> shit right in her life anywhere. And it, it, she sucks at everything. Even when she's trying to be nice, she tries. She, she goes to the job interview. She lets someone cross in front of her in traffic. And he immediately wrecks and he flips her off, basically calls her a bitch. Like it's her fault. Like Because, yes, it was her fault. And then she gets stuck in traffic. She's late for her interview. And then she flips the fuck out and, like, kind of weirds everybody out at the job interview. So she's already having a hell of a day. <laughs> and so she goes to her job at the diner where she's making money for this, what has to be a $6,000 a month rent that she's trying to put together. Maybe it's rent controlled. It could be. Yeah. It could be. Maybe her family owns it. Yeah. And her boyfriend comes and she's all ready to, you know what, shed this 
in horrible day off of her and go with her hot, rich boyfriend and impress her family and and have a nice Christmas with her family up in the Poconos, wherever. And he comes and he's like, look, you know, I slept with you once, so I'm not, we're cool. I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, meeting the family thing is not for me. I'm out. And she's like, oh, okay. And so in walks Mario Lopez looking all, you know, Mario, Mario Lopez. Lopez-esque, right? He's just a chiseled hunk of a human being. And he's got great dimples. Yeah, He's a good looking guy. Yeah. I, I don't, I, as far as substance goes. He's maybe like, a little short for me. Maybe. <laughs> so he's there to have a quick cheeseburger and he's going to meet his fiance there. Well, and, he's going to propose. propose. He's yeah. going to propose to her at this diner for some unknown reason why he's choosing this place. So, it, but it's always busy. That place is always busy. Yeah, it's packed. Yeah. And it's, it's also weirdly run by, uh, um, um, a Hindu man. He's, yeah. And, and so it's, it's a Hindu man who's really into Christmas for some reason. I think it's really just about money, but I mean like, right. But that's fine. It, that's a really weird subplot of this movie that kind of, that analyze that stereotype. If at your peril, <laughs> I, I guess, I don't know. Um, so Mario Lopez's girlfriend's late. Um, he finishes his cheeseburger and, um, he does a meet cute with, uh, Melissa and Hart outside. She decides, you know what? I'm going to kidnap this guy. Uh, he falls, hits his head on the ice. She puts him in his car, drives him up to, um, drives him up to her parents' house. When they get there, she's like, "Look, we're going to be at my parents' house, and I'm going to pretend you're my boyfriend, and I need you to do this for me." And he's like, "No, I'm not going to do that." And so he gets to the house, and he and he actually he reads he runs into um, you know a gas station attendant, and she comes up with this plan of like, "Oh, well, that's going to be our thing, where he's going to pretend not to be my boyfriend, and I'm kidnapping him, and then that's going to be a funny thing that everyone's going to buy into, and then so that'll be fine. So he'll be too far away from 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 you know." Uh, you know, from the city to be able to walk back. He's stuck here with me. We'll do this for, for, you know, through Christmas and then we'll get out and I'll let him go and everything will be fine. That's Melissa Joan Hart's plan. Um, He plays along. He basically does try to convince her family that he has been kidnapped, that his name is Michael and not David or David and not Michael. I David and not for, Nick. Nick. There we go. Yeah. I'm not Nick. I'm David. And they're like, ha ha, and Nick. They, and they completely buy LOL. into it. Um, her parents are white bread Americana. You've got Marky Post as her mom, who's a stay-at-home mom who is undersexed and over-houseworked. <laughs> and <laughs> Timothy Bottoms is her dad, who is probably a retired Republican, does something, but they have money. Uh, but he's a tidy whitey's wearing um, moron, essentially. Like sex once a year. I mean, it was right birthday sex once a year yeah. kind of thing. He um, full of dad jokes and what have you. Um, June Lockhart plays her drunken grandmother, trying to fig to fill into that Betty Wright void that is existing. June Lockhart, if you don't know, is the mom from Lost in the original Lost in Space. Um, and then two nondescript actors for her brother and sister. Yeah. One is a I guess uh, a burgeoning lawyer. Her sister is a burgeoning lawyer, apparently, and then her brother does some sort of business finance. Stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Ge- insert generic kind of. And so, of course, you see where this is going. Uh, over the course of time, Mario Lopez realizes I can't get out of this situation, and so I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna make the best of it. I'm gonna play along. And eventually they start to have, you know, I don't know if they have Warm feelings fuzzies. for one another, but 
And, and then all the while back in New York City, his fiance has been looking for him, like as you would in Falling for Christmas. She's been looking what? for him. <laughs> she, she goes to the cops. Right. And then so eventually, <clears throat> just to wrap this plot up in a neat little bow, is that the cops come to the place where he is located. He eventually finds a cell phone that he can use to call and he calls her. They're able to trace him down and they arrest the entire family. But of course, out of the goodness of, of what's what's his real name? It's David is David is real name. Yeah. So David decides not to press charges. The family's very upset with Melissa Joan Hart. Um, but ultimately, you know, out of all of this, they, they, they get out of it unscathed. Also, her brother comes out as gay. Right. So, yeah, through, through all of this. Yes. So there is. So, yes, there's much more to the plot yeah, that happens yeah, here. Yeah. Right. I mean, we find out that Melissa Joan Hart is an artist. We find out that her family literally hates her. We find out that Melissa Joan Hart's brother is also hiding a secret that he is gay and with and he's in a relationship with another man. We find out that her sister is very hot and wants to open up a Pilates studio rather than be a lawyer. It's taking and, the tuition money. And right. And the grandmother basically wants to escape from this family. And Timothy Bottoms and Marky Post are in a miserable, loveless marriage that is all facade and no so they're substance. all fuck ups right and everything so, gets foisted upon melissa joan hart so as as this as it happens and 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 nick and uh melissa joan hart's character are are kind of stuck together over and over again they start to learn more about each other that while nick actually is in finance that you know he came from humble upbringings and then melissa joan hart is an artist and she has decent art and she likes to she likes to ice skate and um you know and then and then so at the, the big reveal happens you know at the christmas opening up of gifts where melissa joan hart's parents decide to tell her after everyone's opened up their gifts that she is a horrible piece of shit and that she needs to grow up and stop mm-hmm. being an asshole in life and just start trying to find a real job and that art is for losers and fuck-ups and that no one will ever love her <laughs> during a christmas opening of a presence <laughs> Yeah. And then, and then, but, but Mario Lopez is like, Hey, 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 I'm in finance and I've seen her art and it's passionate and soulful. And you know what? I back her. And then he decides to merit, to propose marriage to her out of the blue to kind of get her parents off of the back, exacerbating the situation completely for her and for, and for everyone really, but specifically for her, because now she's got their hopes risen to a certain degree that she's brought home a decent guy. And now that they're going to get married and all this is going to fall apart in a matter of hours. At this and point. the cops bust in. Right. And, and it all goes to shit from there. So we get back. Uh, David realizes that he doesn't love his fiance. That he, she's terrible. That, yeah, that she's a shrew and that um, she, you know, whatever. Probably doesn't know. love him either. She's not Melissa Joan Hart. Right. <laughs> and, and so he decides to set up an art gallery because he's an architect. Right. Is that so it? it's, it's, he, <laughs> I don't know what the he's, fuck he is. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's something. He's, he studied in architecture, but was too scared to go out on his own. So he decides finally he's going to go out on his own. He's going to open up his own architecture firm, but also in this building, he owns an art gallery. And so before this happens, Melissa Joan Hart um, had some work accepted into a group exhibition at a gallery. And later on in the night, she finds out someone bought my painting and it turns out to be him. And it's the first piece of work that will hang in his gallery. And then they come together. And and and, and eventually, Marky Post and Timothy Bottoms, who was in the last picture show, 
they come to the, uh, they've been in therapy. Yeah. And so now they're willing to hear everyone's truths. Yeah. And, and accept them. And, and, and accept them yeah. at face value. So they're now, they love their daughter. They love that she's an artist. They love that she kidnapped a man and held him. Uh, against his will for multiple days at their <laughs> vacation home and lied to them and and um and they and they love the fact that only after a matter of probably less than 72 hours that they're desperately in love and that they're probably going to spend the rest of their lives together and have lots of little babies lots and lots of With little babies great dimples oh um, yeah look going to be gorgeous. this is this is how stockholm syndrome leads to happily ever after <laughs> there is a version of this movie <laughs> that it is it teeters on you could very easily take this exact same script and make a horror film out of this oh and yeah. be very very successful <laughs> this is a misery type event <laughs> yeah, really that, that i mean it, it is so close to this i will say to this end and to in, in, in defense of this movie this movie is what falling for christmas should have been. right right this is so i i thought these two were actually kind of interesting um double features right yeah or, or interesting yeah, for pairing. sure yeah this is what I, because I totally enjoy this movie. As much as we shit on it, I really had a lot of fun watching it. Was it was much more fun than Falling One, for Christmas. The actors know, again, yes, it sucks that Timothy Bottoms is in this movie. But he knows what movie he's in. Right, absolutely. Everybody does. Even the June Lockhart piece. Yeah. So, and, and again, Mario Lopez is forever in a Saved by the Bell yes. episode. He cannot get out of that. He is always AC Slater. But he knows who he is. And so does Melissa Joan Hart. She's yep. Sabrina the Teenage Witch yep. or Clarissa 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 explains it all. Yeah, yep. yeah. And, and, and so this movie, again, you take this movie and I could watch one or two of these every single Christmas and, and really, really enjoy yeah. them. Yeah. It's the falling for Christmas piece of it where I'm like the Nicholas Sparks aspect of all of this. I need something ludicrous. And again, no one really overplays their hand in this. No, no one plays it too big. No one plays it too refined. They all know. They all act like they're in an episode of Side by the Bell. Yeah, like, and, and it's and it's 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 really really stupid and fun and well done. And like, most, look, both of them are immensely on screen likable. Melissa Joan Hart sucks in real life, and that sucks for me because I have a huge fucking crush on her. <laughs> but but. I'm but glad that, Courtney Love doesn't suck in real life. <laughs> right. She has no fault of my, like, <laughs> I'm still maintaining that crush. But on screen, they they work. And there's yeah. just ridiculous scenes. There's a ridiculous scene where she like walks in on him. Like the, the obligatory Mario Lopez shirtless scene. And and it's so funny because she walks in on him and like gets all flustered because he's ridiculously hot. And then he like realizes it's like it's funny because like she leaves the room. And he's still in his towel and he turns back to the mirror and like pensively sighs like, oh, my God, I shouldn't have shown her my hotness because that made her fall in love with me. My six pack. (laughs) Right. My my hairless chiseled chest. Freshly waxed. (laughs) Brings his own wax. Dark amber nipples. (laughs) Merry Christmas, Melissa Joan. (laughs) Here's some ornaments for your tree. Uh, I, I look, there's some interesting ideas in, in, in this. And I, I, cause I try to find these, I think in everything, but this idea of working for the thing 
that you're passionate about, which is what she's doing. You're working for the thing she believes in. Like these are so important to her and they're made even more difficult to do, right? When everyone, everyone around you tells you that you're fucking stupid for doing it. And what you need to do is get a good job, get married, have some kids, buy a house. That'll fix everything. That'll make you feel okay, right? This idea of like falling in line with the status quo that we like our society tricks us into thinking is actually progress when it's, when it's not. And then of course, like at the end, it settles into these ideas ideas of that progress. And it's like, get married, but open up your own small business, be an entrepreneur and support your artist girlfriend slash wife. Right. It's like, it's like, it like we, it's all of these ideas that presents all of the backwards ideas that it presents are so broadly cliche. And then, but it's, but it's twist of fate and its turn is so like mildly progressive, but still hanging on to those old cliche tropes. It's so inoffensive that it, that it, that it's like, again, this is McDonald's movies. And like I, this, so, but again, I can eat this every once in a while. (laughs) I'm okay with that. Occasionally, I don't want to cook for myself. I don't want to fucking watch Yee Yee, all right? I want to watch. <laughs> I'm not going to go to Sight and Sound and pull off one of the top 100. I'm going to watch Holiday in Handcuffs and have a fucking great time doing it. Eating a Big Mac. <laughs> right. <laughs> one of the scenes that really made me, That's great. That made me crack up in this is when Mario Lopez is really starting to come around and like trying to help her realize her dreams. The, he, she had talked earlier about a, a skating routine that she'd done when she was little. And they have this like pavilion and like kind of pond out on their, out, out on their property. And he has like, he brings her out there. They've been together all day long yeah. and, and, and like doing shit. And, and then he brings her out there at night, right before dinner. <laughs> and turns this on, which would have taken him like three days to set up. There's oh, lights, there's in the lights trees. everywhere. He would have had to find lights. He would have had to find a ladder. Electricity rolled out to that area. With a battery operator. <laughs> and then, and then Melissa Joan Hart puts on skates and then a, a very obvious stunt double comes in <laughs> and does her skating routine to the point that when they close up on her face, the and entire scene is fuzzy and blurred <laughs> out. <laughs> Like you think you're gonna it's, get some bad CGI of Melissa no, Joan Hart spinning just, around, and like she's like, "Don't laugh at this change routine. the depth of field so you can't see." <laughs> Don't laugh at this routine, and it is a fucking Nadia Comaneci. Like she's, I'm not right. gonna, or whoever. Like uh, who the fuck is who's Nadia Comaneci on skates? Right, yeah, a gymnast on skates. Whoever's a good. Tara Lipinski. There we go. There we go. Yeah. yeah, she's she's brilliant, and she's like, "Don't laugh at this," and she's doing double, triple sow cows and like spinning around. <laughs> And is that a real thing? That is a real okay. thing. Yeah, but I only know that because of South Park. I don't really know it's because it's a. Uh, I know. I think I watched um, the the Tanya Harding um, Michael okay. Robbie film. Right. Gotcha. But yeah, that this made me laugh because one, like the whole setup of that scene would have taken like three days, and then like then you watch her skate, and she's skating around this. It's like a really bizarre scene. She's skating around this pavilion, and like he's just kind of like got a shitting and goofy grin on his face and then you blur out her actual because like clearly she's got like muscular thighs and like you know and it's and, and, and I'm listening <laughs> to heart really not hurt, yeah. right so That's the great. director of this movie is a guy named Ron Underwood and he was kind of an up and comer uh, in so he started out of his career. He, he directed City Slickers and right. he directed Trimmers, and he was and he did the stuff like Heart and Souls and like there was a few other like kind of middling and then, but he made he made Mighty Joe Young in 1998, which was a huge flop, and then t- four years later. He made one of the biggest flops in Hollywood history. He made The Adventures in Pluto Nash, oh. The Adventures of Pluto Nash with Eddie Murphy, which all told probably lost almost $100 million just in budget alone, not tar- not targeting marketing or anything else. $100 million just in budget. From there, 
TV and TV movies from from the rest of his career. Well, at least he's working. At least he, and and pretty prolifically, but he's not going to get a hundred million dollar movie budget. No, no, but he does get to work with Melissa Joan Hart and Mario Lopez. All right, quick wanking of the films of these oh, films. Okay, which ones? Like, in which ones you'd watch again to the least watching? I okay. I think, I think they're going to be the same for us. Die Hard has to be the top. Sure. I mean, I'll rewatch that over and over. Black Christmas would be second to watch over. Now's, now's the tough one. I know. Because Falling for Christmas clearly comes in last. Yeah. And so it's like, where does... It's it's Holiday in Handcuffs because I'm not watching The Dog Get Stabbed Again. Good point. Good so point. That's a good th- call. Those are my... That's a good... Yeah, and and I'm only putting point. Deadly Games above Falling for Christmas because... It took me a couple times to just get like more than 10 minutes into I can't watch Falling for Christmas. Christmas. You I watched can't. it twice. I, I watched yeah. it once. I, was like, I, I can't watch it again. So <clears throat> is that the same as you? Yeah. I I, I, I probably won't like read. Like to me, Holiday in Handcuffs is Deadly Games. Like if you want to watch a funny sure. movie, like that's the, it's obscure enough. And here's the thing about those movies too. Like there's so fucking many of them now. Like if you go and look and if you search Christmas on IMDb, you're going to come up with that 100 movies in 2022 that came out. So again, this is a cottage industry of films. Like I would, but Holiday and Handcuffs is one to pull out and say, "Oh yeah, you want to watch something batshit crazy? Watch Holiday and Handcuffs. That's fun." Yeah, no, the movie is totally bonkers. It's just. Um, so along with our our five favorite films of 2022, we also wanted to have a kind of gift exchange where we gift each other a film we don't think the other has seen. So it's convoluted, but. But you'll get the yeah, you'll figure it out. But that that makes sense, right? Yeah. So I have a pick for you. Do you have? I have a have pick one? for you as All well. Right. Let me give you mine. Yeah. All right. My pick for you is Funeral Parade of Roses. Okay. Have you ever heard of it? No. Never seen it? No. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to talk about it. Okay. Anything. All right. I won't Funeral, tell anything about it. I'll, I'll, I'll text Parade it to of you. Roses. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Um, and if you don't have a copy, uh, yeah. I'll figure out how to get you a copy. Okay. Well. I, I'm or I can find it or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I had I had like three that I couldn't decide but i think i'm gonna go with the most recent one okay and it's a movie called athena i have not seen it directed by romaine gavras okay and it's it's actually on netflix oh all right um so i think this is a really interesting film and i'm not gonna i, I that's all i'm gonna say even though i want to say more <laughs> <But> <laughs> i didn't want to i didn't want to go back to i was going to give you a, a drier film but we just did like Brisson and all that. I was like, well, well, let's do something else. Right, right, <laughs> so, right. Um, so yeah, Athena by Romain Gavras. Awesome. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk about those in a, in a couple episodes. Yeah, a couple episodes from now. Right. So we'll do um, next Trader time. Next, and, and so we'll wrap up our Trader series in the next episode. We'll do our top five movies of the year in our, in our gift exchange, the, the episode after that. And then following that episode, we'll be talking about the Fort Worth Film Club screening of Brazil and some things around Terry Gilliam, obviously, like we did with Blood Simple. Like the Brothers Grimm. <laughs> We're going to deep dive into the Brothers Grimm. Um, that screening is on uh, December 21st at the Texas, oh, at the Stage West Theater in Fort Worth. Also, tickets will go on sale. By the time that this posts, tickets will have been going on sale for the Real House Foundation Mystery Movie Minithon Part 6. Uh, this is our annual fundraiser that we do every single year. Um, would love to see you guys out there. It is $35 a ticket. We give you two secret movies. We cater the event. Um, we'll have raffles, silent auctions. Uh, I'll be chatting about the movies before and after. It'll be, it's it's a it's a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Stage, we'll have that one at Stage West as well. We're aiming to have this as our biggest event ever. So hopefully we can get, I'm looking for over 100 people. So hopefully we can um, get that moving. But I think you'll really enjoy it. I have a couple films picked out. I think you might've seen at least one 
one of them. I But one of them is pretty under the radar as far as like I saw it at the Oak Cliff Film Festival a couple of Oak Cliff, Cliff, okay. Cliff Film okay. Festivals ago um, and I'm really excited to show it I'm also really nervous to show it but I'm always nervous to show, show these movies so anyway January 21st uh, starting at 6pm Stage West go to realhousefoundation.org when this drops uh, tickets there'll be an event out there you can buy tickets they're $35 all the, the proceeds go to a good cause none of that money comes to me it goes to covering the event and, go, and everything else goes to the actual kids in this holding screening so uh, and if you want to learn more about what we do, and of course, in our outro, you'll hear it as well. But you can go to realhousefoundation.org. That's R-E-E-L housefoundation.org. Really appreciate it if you came out there and saw us. Links are also in the show notes awesome. um, to our website, the Real House Foundation website, the Fort Worth Film Club website. Um, so you and can always follow along there. Also to Brock Kingsley gets sad sometimes.com. That's a URL that I have to buy for you for Christmas. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. Okay. <laughs> it's just going to be every, I love, I, yeah, every it, day. It's just going to be a picture of you just kind of like <laughs> a new, a new sad picture of me, which nobody wants to see. And anyone who's met me in real life is like, mm, that's just how you I, look. I you can't, just look sad. I can't wait for our new cover art. So um, if you guys, if you guys are familiar with our cover art, obviously one of the things that Brock and I thought were funny, it would be funny was to mimic kind of uh, double handed, um, old rock albums. So we're our, our cover art right now is Simon and Garfunkel. We're going to do that dog, which is, uh, I forget what the title of the, what's the album? Totally crushed uh, out. Totally crushed out. Yes, yes, yes. Such a good record. Um, <clears throat> and there's three individual Polaroid pictures and the artist came to us. Her name is uh, Molly. You can follow her out on, um, most slaughter out on Instagram. Her, un, her Instagram title is underscore M O S L A underscore. Also on the show notes. Also on the show notes. And she's brilliant. She does all the work for film Fort Worth club she's gonna be doing a flyer for the real house foundation i'm so excited about that she and i worked up a good uh concept for that one um and yeah so we were thinking about what to put in the polaroids and we're gonna do for florence pew of course uh we're gonna do pauline kale and then we're gonna do <laughs> richard keir from american gigolo but there was i looked for a pauline i looked for a pauline kale review on black christmas and i couldn't find it i really wanted to see if we it need was to make that there. a thing that we do like we need to f- figure out if we can find and like read some of our favorite quips from her during well, this i've done it yeah, i know, yeah, like I know you have i know i know oh you know what it's funny too like as we keep talking and the time keeps going up and we're pissing off the guys that, that do this studio for us. Ebert didn't like, I always, I always, I, I love Ebert. Like, yeah, I mean, I he, did, he did not, he, right. he didn't like Die Hard. Right. He did, Die Hard was a two star. And like the Gleason thing for him was what really kind of derailed mm-hmm. him. I can see that. And, um, and I can see like that being your first taste, but man, I, but like looking at it now and watching it as many times as I've watched it, I just, I, I get giddy when it comes on. It's like, so much fun. And, and, and Kat was like, oh my God, this is such a good movie. Like, it's just one of those things where like, you know, it's great. Oh, also while we're sitting here talking, what do you feel about the sequels? Cause I really dig three. I like Die Hard with the Vengeance. I think is really, really good. Yeah. No, I think three is really good. I don't know the rest of them are shit, but like, but three uh, is, three is really good. I will also watch any of them. I will watch I, I, one, two, and three. I will watch. I don't care. I will I watch. I can't watch the latter day ones. The last one is terrible. Don't care. The I hate Justin Long, but I was. I look. And here's the thing. I well. I tell I tell people when they're when they're like, oh, what kind of movies do you watch? And I'm like, sight and sound list. Right. And then I go, but I also fucking love the Die Hard franchise because I do, and 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 I mean this, and like unironically, I will watch like one through five. I don't care. 
I will talk about how bad the other ones are, but I will still watch them. So I'm a huge Sam Phillips fan. Uh-huh. And so her role in part three is so like voiceless and delicious. I saw her in concert with Tom. I fucking, I, I mean, I love her stuff and it's, um, and I was so like when she was like kind of popular in that kind of Buffalo Tom kind yeah. of crows era, I saw those three together at Deep Ellum. And like, that's when she hit the, that's when she did the movie. And it was like, oh gosh, yeah. it was just like, I was like in love. <laughs> Sam Phillips, Courtney Love. <laughs> I don't um, think Sam Phillips was quite as like teetering on the edge. No, no, no. Of, I was um, saying your your oh, crush okay, yes. on Sam Phillips, my crush on Courtney Love. Um, <laughs> Someday that'll happen. <laughs> yeah. Juliana Hatfield, totally. if you're out there listening, I, and I'm married now. Come on so the show. Yeah, oh, come just, on the show. Yeah, have a chat. Have yeah, a chat. I just want to I just want to talk. It's, yeah. Just hang on. I, I have like my current musical taste is really that of sort of an angsty teenage girl. Right. I mean, so like, I mean, no, give me any like Phoebe Bridgers or Lucy Dacus or snail mail and, and wax. I and, yeah. uh, uh, Frankie Cosmos, who's Kevin Klein's daughter. daughter? Really? I yeah. did not know that. Yeah. Anyway, give me, give me those. And, and Faye Webster. Do you think yeah. Juliana Heffel is looking for an avenue to talk about her relationship with uh, Evan Dando anymore? Probably. I, th- I think so. Always. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should call her and see. And I think, you know, here's the place to do it. So right, we can, right. so we can sing, you know, I love my drug buddy. Yeah. Not that. Anyway, to her. Okay, <laughs> Julian right. Anfield, I'm not I'm not insinuating that you are anybody's drug buddy. Okay. Till, till next time. Till folks. next time. Thanks for listening. Keep All streaming. Right. Bye bye. You have been listening to Why Does the Wilhelm Scream with your hosts Brock and Jason. If you like today's episode, do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe in whatever application you use to consume podcasts these days. You can reach us by visiting whydoesthewilhelmscream.com. If you are in the DFW area, we would love to see you at a Fort Worth Film Club event. You can learn more about those and find a full schedule at fortworthfilmclub.com. And you can learn about my foundation and how we are trying to foster the next generation of film lovers at realhousefoundation.org. That's R-E-E-L housefoundation.org. Till next time.